Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, my guest is Abdullah Zinab, who just became the first winner of the first ever Rhino Run. Now, the Rhino Run is a brand new race in the ultra-endurance cycling world that takes place in South Africa. It was originally slated to kick off in 2020, but obviously the world shut down for a couple years. And so this was the first iteration of the Rhino Run. It boasts 2,750 kilometers, which is 1,700 miles for my American friends. And this year, 32 participants signed up to brave the South African arid and harsh environment. I know many of you were probably following along this race, and it was quite the spectacle for Dot Watchers. Lots of drama ensued, and Abdullah was certainly in the heat of it all. In the end, him and Benki had an epic fight to the finish, and Abdullah was able to pull out a victory. On today's episode, we get a little bit of background from Abdullah learn what he's been doing prior to this event, how he got ready for it. And of course, we get into the event itself and it's a captivating story. I truly enjoyed my chat with Abdullah. He is entertaining. He's got stories for days and I could have listened to him for hours and hours. Uh, but today you get about two and a half hours of them, and I've got a good feeling you're going to like this one. Before we get to today's episode, let's take a moment to thank the people that made this episode possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. You know, we really can't produce these shows without support from this great community. We appreciate everybody that can support the show, whether it's just a dollar or $5 or $500, whatever it is. We appreciate it. We know that times are tough out there. The world is crazy and uh, we hear it. We feel you. And that is why I make sure to thank every single person who supports this show. Let's start off by thanking Rob Adams, Jake Ramos, Joe Raber, Paul Vitovich, Katrina Haas, or Hayes, Denver Luttrell, and Monica Bumgartner. We also had a couple patrons increase their pledge this month. I want to give a shout out to Rick Otterstrom. And Nick Little for increasing their pledge. We appreciate all of you so much. Again, I know that times are tight. We feel it. We hear you. Uh, but if you can support this show, it certainly does make a huge difference and helps keep these episodes free and coming into your podcast feed on a weekly basis. All right. Well, let's go ahead and also thank the sponsors of today's episode, starting with my friends over at Embark Maple. You've heard me talk about Embark Maple before. They make an excellent maple-based supplement for your rides. Uh, my favorite is a coffee-flavored one. It's absolutely delicious. They were also a sponsor of our takeover event, and Laura came, made pancakes for us. They had this amazing bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup to put on the pancakes. It was absolutely delicious. actually gave me a... Uh, Gave me one as a gift to take home, and we've been enjoying it here at home. But today, we're not going to be talking about Embark Maple products. Today, we're here to talk about a new initiative they have called the Mid-South Good Energy Scholarship. 
Now, what this is, is they have one ticket available for the Mid-South this February, and Embark has teamed up with Wren, Velocity, Sendero, and the Mid-South to put together a really sweet package for you. They're asking that applicants submit a short video about their experiences in the outdoors, and they want to listen and learn from all of you and be able to share your stories and elevate your voices of everyone who seeks good energy in the outdoors. They're especially encouraging members of the BIPOC and queer community to submit applications, but of course, they want to hear from everybody. So if you are interested in signing up for that package and one ticket into the Mid-South event this February, you can get all the details over at EmbarkMaple.com. Their application opens on December 19th, and the winner will be announced on Saturday, December 24th. That's a really great thing that Embark is doing. Of course, you can find that link also in my show notes. And while you're over at EmbarkMaple.com, why don't you uh, check out their shop and see what kind of holiday items you might be able to get for either yourself or for a loved one in your life. They have lots of great packages. They even have a shop gifts section to make it super easy for you to find things on your holiday list. And today's episode is also brought to us by Kuat Racks. I've been a huge fan of Kuat for a long time. First, I just really, the the aesthetic of their rack really appeals to me. And having been an owner of one for three years now, I can tell you it's absolutely bulletproof. I've taken all my bikes all around the country and the Kuat rack has always had my back. But I think it's important to note some philanthropic efforts that Kuat does as well. They have the Future Forest Initiative. So in 2015, they partnered with the National Forest Foundation, as well as other tree planting organizations like One Tree Planted and Trees for the Future to plant about 600,000 trees to date. Most of these have been planted in fire-damaged national forests within the U.S. These trees promote the long-term health of the land, and families and communities and leave a legacy of hope for the future. Kuat Racks believes that products designed for enjoying the outdoors should also be kind to the outdoors. So as a thank you for purchasing one of their products, a donation will be made to help the future of our forest through their Future Forest Initiative. Of course, you can learn more over at kuat.com. And while you're there, check out all their great racks and their accessories to support your bike and yourself as you head out into the great outdoors. And remember, Kuat, because you love your bike. One more quick announcement from the Bikes or Death team here. I want to let you know that the Bikes or Death store is stocked up with lots of goodies. We have uh, a few muggles left from our friend Amanda Panda. Uh, we have three left, I believe, and these are the big Stein ones. They're huge. Like picture a old school beer mug. I mean, they're absolutely huge. So you could use it for soup, beer coffee, whatever you want to put in there. They're absolutely wonderful. We also got in stock some new long sleeve hoodies with the Bikes or Death logo on there, as well as some Bikes or Death dad hats. And we have some new titanium stem caps made from my friends over at Okluma. 
Lots of good stuff. So if you're looking to top off your holiday shopping list and you're looking for a cyclist in your life, or maybe you're looking to buy yourself something nice for Christmas, we sure wouldn't mind if you went over to the Bikes or Death store and put a few of those items in your cart for this holiday season. All right, everybody, that's it. Our dues have been paid, and now we can get to the show and my excellent, if I may say so, conversation with Abdullah. But first, let's have my friend Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. So you live on the Gold Coast in Australia. How long have you been there? I've uh, I've been on the Gold Coast since 20, I want to say early 2020. About March 2020, I moved up to the Gold Coast. It was actually just a temporary thing, but I was fortunate enough to get locked down here. It's a pretty good place to get locked down in Australia. So then, you know, I never left. It's kind of like, I, I, I don't know the equivalent in America, but it's like a nice beach place. A nice beach. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like the equivalent of like California or something, I would assume. It's like, mm, yeah, yeah. Definitely in some like nice beach in California. Yeah. So it's, it's really known for its surfing. I'm curious. I'm actually going um, next week in like five days, I leave for a surf trip in Oaxaca. You do any surfing? You know what? I, I grew up in South Australia. So the beach is kind of like a semi dump. Well, I shouldn't say it like that. Where we used to go to the beach when I was growing up, it was kind of like, it's not a really beach you want to get into. Uh, so when I came up and I was kind of, I had a lot of things, issues with the beach and I was a chubby kid. So I never really wanted to go into the water because I was, I felt insecure about how I looked. So I was very standoffish to water. I didn't really know how to swim. So when I came up here, I never went in the water, man. And I was literally like a kilometer like when i first came up here i was 300 meters from the beach and then i moved 200 meters from the beach and then you know like now i'm in american terms i'm like a mile from the beach so it took me a long time to get in the water the the tipping point for me was um i hurt my back training i just got this random back injury uh and i was like you know what the only thing that can heal me is the ocean so I was like, fuck this, I'm going in the water. So I was like, I just squared off with the water and I just started going in the ocean. And it was really good. And then I was going in pretty infrequently from then, but it's only recently because my partner um, surfs. She's like a really good surfer, really good bodyboarder, really like grew up on the beach, uh, just fully into that lifestyle. So she would take me out. So we'd go out on the bodyboards and attempt to catch waves. And I'd catch a wave, I'd start screaming. And it's really fun. Uh, screaming and terror and joy. No, just like I'm on this thing. Like she would have to be, It's she would fully coach me. Like I'd be on the bodyboard and she would be like, all right, the wave's coming. And I'd be like, what do I do? She'd be like, paddle. And then I'd be paddling and she'd be like, all right, go left. And then I'd be going left. And then I'd be on it. And for the first few times I'd catch, I wouldn't even, like I didn't even, I don't even look at the wave, man. Like I would just be paddling, like trying to get on this thing. I'd be on it and just screaming and like trying to s- survive. 
But um, yeah, I probably like last time we were out, we we're out for like an hour. I caught one wave. It was pretty fun. <laughs> so she takes me out. You've never been surfing? No, first time. First time. Bro, it's harder than it looks, eh? Like I used to sit, I used to sit on the hill and watch because the surf gets pretty big here. And there's like when surf's really big, people go out to the like there's little hills and that where you can sit and watch all the people surf. And I would like be looking out and my partner would be, would be with me. And I'd be like, oh, that surf looks tiny, eh? She'd be like, that's huge. I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'd go out there, I'd jump. I, I used to think like, oh yeah, I'd just go out there and jump on that thing. That's fine. You know? And then when you're out there, it's like the tiniest wave when you're on your stomach looks like you're looking up at it like, what do I do, man? So um, it's definitely it's definitely an interesting thing to try. What's harder, paddling out or catching a wave? Paddling out is pretty difficult for me. <laughs> for me, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like, you know, when you learn a new skill and you're just like, this is just, just, you're like, this is taking way too much energy. Like I watch her, she'll just be like, out in like a minute and i'm just like ah, ah. like i'm using every single muscle fiber in my body's activated just to get out and then a wave comes and i'm like she's like go under it. and i'm just like ah, going under it by the time i get out i burnt like a thousand calories just like 100 meters and then my chest man because i'm hairy so my chest is on this thing it's rubbing and it's like ah and my feet are burning and it's just but you can tell from the brief i've probably been out three or four times and i can tell within those four times i'm like it actually gets i'm like oh it becomes a bit more easier. You're not using so much energy. So I'm happy. I'm excited to keep going and I'll be excited to hear how your trip is. It's a good, it's a good workout from what I hear. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm scared. Uh, I know it's going to be hard every, I was just getting, that's why I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt. I wore, I got this tattoo like two days ago and, uh, my tattoo artist was like, uh, he, he's a, he does some surfing He's like, oh, you never been? I was like, no. Nah. He's like, oh, it's fucking hard. <laughs> and everybody I talk to just talks about just mostly paddling out. And then you try to check catch a wave and you can't catch a wave because you suck. And then you got to paddle out again. And it's just that on repeat. But I'm gonna I'm gonna be a fast learner. I'm gonna get in good shape in the process. But everyone in you look at in the surf is in, not everyone, but like you definitely the people are in shape. Because they're out there for ages too. They're out there for like one, two hours just paddling, jumping up, paddling. It's just like, so it's definitely a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know how it goes. In the Gold Coast there, uh, do you have a job? Or are you full-time cyclist now? Uh, how are you managing that? Um, so I've done odd jobs for the last like four years. Essentially what I've done is ride. And then when I'm not really riding, I'll do some form of manual labor. So I feel like I've done every single manual labor job under the sun. My most recent bout of manual laboring was scaffolding. So I was working for a scaffolding company um, while I was training for the Rhino Run. And then I went part-time with them. And then about, I had this like um, fairy tale in my mind that I'd go part-time scaffolding and train. Uh, and that didn't last long because I was just, I was completely cooked. Every Like I was just the most cooked I've ever been in my life, you know? So eventually I was like, um, I came into some money um, from my tax money and all that came to me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not working anymore because I was like, why would I get ready for this? If I can't even, I'm going nowhere. I got actually worse when I went part-time and started training. So I had the money and I was like, you know what? It's, I'm just going to go all in and start training for this. And I only had a few months left. So I was like, that's what I did. But yeah, scaffolding, man. It was probably, it was probably one of the funnest jobs I've ever done. Do you, uh, do you gravitate towards like manual labor? Cause it, keeps you in shape do you just enjoy it like what what about or maybe it's just seasonal and you pick up work anytime anywhere 
when I first started, the great thing was I was living in I was living in Melbourne, so it was just really easy for me to go down to a labour hire agency and say, you know, these are my details, sign up, yada yada yada, and they call you say we got work Monday, Monday start on Monday, and you'd go and sometimes it'd be one day or you might end up there being there for two months, so it was kind of seasonal. Um, I liked I liked the physicality of it. I felt you know I had I had no qualifications. I, like you know I, I, I didn't have a university. I don't really have anything to. My resume was fake. Like my mum's name was on my resume. She got a different last name to me. My uncle was like someone on there. You know my mate. I got my mate on there. Just complete fake resume. So I just thought, well, you know what? I know how to train. I know how to. Um, I know how to move things because I was lifting a lot of weights at the time, and I kind of enjoyed the monotony of it. I found myself doing really monotonous jobs and I was like, wow, I'm actually really enjoying trying to make this fun. And I really enjoyed being in my own company for a long time. And also being with um, just the construction industry, you meet some funny characters. So that's how it got started for me. And then I just found that it was just easy to just go back to. Um, and then, you know, you get better. as like you think, oh, you know, you're a laborer. That's Essentially, you're a laborer. So, um, but you learn a lot over the time and it's 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 quite... I found it to be quite enjoyable when it's good. When it's shit, it's really difficult. But um, that's also kind of enjoyable. It seems like a good way to just keep your body moving and keep keep in shape. And I mean, you're not going to make huge gains, I don't think, uh, using your body but or doing manual labor. But I mean, you're always using your body. So as long as it's not detracting from your training and like you're overusing your body, it seems like it could be a good thing possibly. I think, yeah, I think it depends. Like when I was doing the most of my manual labor, I was looking weights predominantly. So it kind of didn't hinder it too much because it was kind of, you're kind of lifting moderate to low loads with a high repetition. So it kind of is a bit, it's kind of cardiovascular at that point. Um, whereas when I was, when I, my training got more serious and I was like, okay, I'm going out doing these numbers. I'm doing these rides. I want to, hit this power, do this heart rate, whatever, I really, and I got a bit more focused on it, I really started to notice, I was like, fuck, this is really detracting from my training now. But in ways, it really helped me. But I mean, when it came to kind of the crunch time for me, especially with scaffolding, like scaffolding was the most hard physical, like when I went to apply for the job, he was like, he asked me, he was like, oh, what have you done? I was like, oh, I've done a bit of concreting and that. And he was like, he said to me, oh, scaffolding is way harder than concreting. And I was like, yeah, well, that's what everyone says. Um, and he was like, no, man, it's really like you wait for it. And I was like, okay. And um, I remember like one day they had all these trucks because they load all the gear on trucks. And sometimes eventually you end up seeing this truck rock up to the side and you're looking at it. It's like looking up a skyscraper dude of like just equipment. And I used to say to the guy, like, well, how do they, I used to say my first day I was there, I was like, how do they get that off the truck? Like they got a fork, you know, like a, some sort of picket, like a little crane and that. And he just looked at me. He was like, you'll see, bro. You'll see. And then literally you just get on this truck, man, and you just start throwing gear off and lifting and you're moving thousands of – like some days I would check. Like I would actually check. I would start doing math. I'd be like, okay, how many of those did we move? How many of those did I move? And literally, man, sometimes it's like you would walk 30 kilometers in a day, literally 30 kilometers, moving thousands of kilos, tons of equipment, tons. and And it's – it's not really like many of you doing it, like especially the person who's ranked the lowest, aka me, is moving. You get all the hard shit, so all the heaviest stuff, the most walking, the most lifting. So 
I think it was really great for me when um, I was I was just trying to stay fit and I was just kind of taking over on the bike. But when I was like, okay, um, tomorrow I'm riding for eight hours, you would do that on a Wednesday, finish at like 5 p.m. And then at like 4 a.m. you're on the bike and you two hours in and you're just like, I literally can't pedal. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it sounds like there are some parallels with uh, repetitive motion using your body as an endurance effort. I mean, it's not huge weight you're lifting. It's just constant throughout the day. And then, like you said, repetitive kind of being in your own head in entertaining yourself for long hours at a time. So there's probably some like auxiliary benefits that maybe were a part of that. Yeah. The mental, I definitely got huge. I definitely like, I definitely got a lot out of it, man. Mentally, it was very extremely stressful. You know, because you're backing up these huge days. Like riding the bike for me personally, for others it might be different, but in my personal experience, riding the bike never came close because this is like you're up at 3 a.m. You might ride the bike for one hour and then you're in the car. You've got this huge commute. You know, it might be like an hour and a half in the car and then you're there by six or whatever. And then you might work from six till five. Um, and that was me, bro. Like I would run away. Like I tell these guys, I was like, look, I've got to get home. I've got to cook. I've got to do shit. They would get back at like eight o'clock at night most of the But I'd be like, I'm, I'm going. So you've done that all day. And then by the time you get home, you eat, it's like, you know, 9 PM. You have like 10 minutes of free time. Both your eyes are twitching just from just the <laughs> sheer physical. So shit, I used to get in the car, dude. And it started off with a left eye twitch. And by some days I'd leave and both my eyes would be twitching about this. And then you know what I mean? You got 10 minutes of free time and then you're in bed and then you're up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. again. You're just like, oh, I'm here. I'm back here. So, uh, yeah, I, that translates That translates um, massively on the bike. You know, maybe not actual physical performance like your what's what, but just being able to just be like, okay, I'm here again. Let, let me keep going. Let me keep going. And just trying to find a way to enjoy it. Let me keep going. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So uh, you are a vegan athlete. I'm curious, um, were you a vegan first or an athlete first? What What's the relationship there? I started lifting weights. I fell in love with lifting weights probably back in 2000 and at the end of 2010 when I was in high school, you know. I had a mate who was above me and um, I was kind of overweight and he was really in shape and that and I was just mesmerized by it. He took me to the gym and that, and then like I just fell in love with it straight away. I was like, "Whoa, man, this is great!" So I fell in love with lifting weights, and I was pretty serious lifting weights for six years, maybe like pretty like it, it was just my whole life, you know. Never miss a training session, never miss eating, never miss. You know what I mean? I used to weigh protein powder on a plane. Like I used to take a food scale and weigh up scoops of protein on an international flight because it was just so important to me, you know. Um, so I was doing that for ages and then I slowly, once I moved to Victoria, I didn't have a car. I started commuting on a, on a single speed and I kind of started and I was kind of coming out of that. Uh, like I loved lifting. I loved the discipline of it, but I kind of started falling out of love with it um, relative to where it was before. And I was like, I was kind of just going, you know, well, I know this is good for me and I'm going to keep doing it, but I don't really have the passion as I used to anymore. And I was kind of struggling with that. So when I started commuting, I was like, well, I really enjoy this. You know, I really enjoy just moving my body on the bike. And that started to, uh, I just started to ride a little bit more. And I came into contact with veganism at that time through some friends. And it was more so just, I really didn't know anything about it. I was just kind of like, 
these guys are cool. Let me try it. And uh, that's what I did. And then it's just something that developed over time for me, learning about veganism, the ethics behind veganism, and it's just evolved. Yeah. So how does being a vegan impact your ability to do ultra distance cycling? I mean, you are subject to whatever food is available on course. And if you're doing Trans Am or Rhino Run, you can't pack enough food for, you know, eight to 16 days. So, so how is that impacting you, you think? And, and maybe also, what is the benefit to your body? I don't, I'm, I'm curious about both yeah. things. I think it's, it's kind of like the actual event, if you think about it, is such a small percentage of your time, you know? So sometimes it is difficult on an event. Trans Am, absolutely not. Maybe in some portions of the Trans Am, it was difficult. But you do your best at those times. Uh, and compared to the Rhino Run, the Rhino Run was horrific um, in terms of finding vegan food really it was horrific but you make do but it's such a small percentage of the part the the training cycle and your life that it's really it's not something i really worry about and for me personally it's a whole way of life it's a whole way of life it's a whole way of looking at the world it's a philosophy and it only improves my life you know it only improves my life it makes me feel more connected to myself more connected to the world around me makes me feel like I have better mental clarity, uh, more just general well-being. So it improves everything. You know, it's not for me when I first started, it was on the lowest level, which is just like, oh, this is my diet. You know, this is my diet. This is what I eat. And it kind of, you know, I went vegan, back to vegetarian, back to vegan. And it's, and it's because I hadn't really, I wasn't really rooted in a deep understanding of the ethics behind veganism. But once I crossed that threshold, um, really just because of a, um, I had a, I have a good friend who was really is kind of like a vegan act. He's a vegan activist, really, um, quite an inspiring individual. He really, I was on tour with him shooting, um, some content for him documentary he was producing. And that's when I really got exposed to it. And that's when it really changed for me. And yeah, like I said, it's, it's a whole way of life. It's a whole way of looking at the world. It's a whole way of um, being, and it's not just the diet. So it, it's improved my life on every level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you ever in, in ultra endurance events, has there been a time where you had to, you know, cheat on that way of life? Uh, and is that hard for you or if so, or maybe you never run into that before? No, no, I've ran into that. I've ran into that for sure. Like I've uh, definitely um, had experiences where I've eaten something and I, I just know that uh, not like um, animal, like chicken or fish or beef or, you know, a cow or something like that. But I've been like, I'm, I'm sure there's dairy in this. And, you know, it's something that really affected me initially, like um, something I felt super guilty about for a very long time. And... I just had to let it go. I just let it go because I knew deep down in my heart that I was doing my best. You know, I didn't go out to the middle of America and go, this is great. I'm in the middle of America. I haven't eaten in 10 hours. I'm somewhere in Kansas. Um, and let me, you know, get a muffin that potentially has dairy in it. It's, you're not thinking like that. You know, that's exactly, that's, that's kind of the worst situation I would want myself to be in. But, um, you know, it's something I let go of at that time. And, uh, for example, on the Rhino Run, there was a time where, you know, I had been away for like 30 hours or something, just 
like the most horrendous situation and they had a veggie pasta on the menu. That's the only thing they had that had vegetables and it was pasta. And I was like, yeah, give me the veggie pasta. I hadn't had a cooked meal in, in, in um, days, man, really, days. And I was like, just give it to me. And um, I had it and, you know, I'm sure there would have been probably some dairy in it. And, you know, it's not even at the time, you're not even thinking like that. You're just like, you're just eating it, you know, and it's really once or twice in the whole scheme of it. And it's not something you're, you're still making the best option you can, even within that situation, you know, you're not going, Oh, there's a veggie pasta that potentially has cheese in it. Let me get that. You're just like, look, just give me the vegetables. Give me what I can get here. And that's it. You know, you're not, and, and out of all of that, there's chocolate bars, meat, chicken, like all this, and you're just, you're just doing your best. I think that's a great way to look at it just in life. I think the principle that I try to live by is do your best and then give yourself a little grace, you know? Um, and it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing because that's all you can do is your best. And you are not, you're a product of the society of, uh, you know, you're a slave to the options that are available to you. And that's, that's, that's what you can do. And so I think it's smart to give yourself a little grace and, and do the best you can where you can. And I think that's awesome. I'm curious about, um, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I'm really curious about, I, I recently, like six months ago, started getting into uh, lifting uh, just every day. I, I Right before we hopped on, I did an hour. Uh, today was a cardio day, so I did the row machine and I punched the punching bag and I got a slam ball and I did battle ropes and just kept my heart rate as absolutely high as possible for a solid hour. And as I as I go down this path of like working out, lifting weights, you know, six days a week, I, I mean, like you said, I mean, I've changed my diet drastically. Um, my relationship with alcohol in the last six months, I've lost 13 pounds. I mean, I've just completely made a, a huge change and, and it feels great. Like I'm, I'm loving this new lifestyle. I'm very committed to it. And at the same time, I, you know, I want to be this ultra endurance athlete and, I'm wondering if you could speak to what your relationship is right now with, you know, working out, lifting weights and, and essentially, you know, building an endurance body, maybe not building a weightlifting, you know, muscle man body, but are you still working out? And, and how do you think that helps you, uh, in ultra endurance cycling? I think it's pivotal. Uh, first of all, that's awesome about the weight loss, man. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, in terms of lifting, I think it's absolutely pivotal. I think for me, it's probably been probably responsible for ninety percent of you know the results I've had in um, really lo- not really long distance ultra like across America, across Australia, and line run. A lot of that's attributed to lifting weights and just being resi- Like you just feel resilient physically to all the niggles all the pains, the aches, you just feel strong. And especially on long, 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 long efforts like that, you know, what, you know, the kind of parts of your body that you engage on a two-hour ride um, versus when you're 100 hours deep into a race is very different. Your whole body is working at that point, everything, you know. One thing goes and then the next thing, you know, you, you, you know, I had times where it's, it literally feels like you're holding on with just your forearms. And you or your shoulder or your you know you your everything is being engaged. So you really need total body strength 
um, to be able to deal with everything that comes up. And just literally, to me, I used to just, you just wanted to be able to run through a wall before the thing. You wanted to be thick and be able to just run through a wall. So I know it's kind of an out there analogy, but I think it's absolutely pivotal, especially I, the, my, the only time I've ever been in pain is when I don't lift weights. That's facts. And I'm not saying you're going to go in there and do three sets of bicep curls, but the, the only time I've ever had big muscular imbalances, hip imbalances, and, you know, scapular issues, retracted, you know, um, winged scapula, being in chronic pain in my shoulders and neck is when I wasn't lifting weights. And I don't think it has to be a lot of weights. For me personally right now, I'm really enjoying just going weights one day, riding the next day on the trainer. Weights one day, riding the next day on the trainer, just getting my heart rate up, having fun. No kind of clear objective other than just to have fun. Just go, let me get my heart rate up and kind of enjoy being out of breath. You know, I'm just enjoying yeah. being out of breath. Get it's used really, to it. Yeah, just getting used to it. And I have nothing to look at. It's not like I look at the parent and go, I've got to hold this many watts yet. It's really enjoyable. I'm just like, let me get my heart rate up, maybe like an eight out of 10 and just hold that and really kind of, in, you know, peer into, experience, observe what it's like to be really out of breath. Um, so that's kind of fun for me at the moment. But I'm just going to the gym every other day, training my upper body, training everything, upper body, lower body, abs, core, whatever, man. And I think that uh, it's absolutely pivotal for just being um, resilient out there. And then I think when you have the opportunity to do it, it's, it's definitely something that should be taken. Like for me personally, my objective now, I'm not really training for anything. There's nothing in the immediate future that I would want to do. But I've just noticed that if you are consistent for a long period of time with lifting weights, that um, you, you, when you start training, you have a great base to work off of. And then if you have to kind of cut back on them for like two or three months just because the cycling training is at such a level now where it's like, you know, well, I can't do both to the same level. I don't have the recover, uh, recovery capacity. So I have to really cut back on the weights and just do the bare minimum. You can do that because you might have a year or, you know, you might have 12, 15, 16, 18 months worth of solid strength training in there. That doesn't go away overnight. So I think it's key. Yeah. So do you try to balance? I'm, I'm curious, like, I mean, muscle is great. It gives you a very, uh, a very strong and overall capable body, but also weighs a lot. Is your training such now that because you're doing so much riding and so much cardio that you don't have to worry about bulking up too much? Or do you, uh, yeah, how do you manage that as like an endurance athlete? Honestly, it's not really something I worry about. Like in terms of, I think for ultra endurance, weight is really not that important. It's really not that important. Uh, and, but I think naturally at the kind of top end of ultra endurance, you kind of do, you, you lose weight just because of the training, really. Like the training, I think if you took a, a you know, a, a sample of like maybe the top 10 guys or top five guys across all forms of ultra cycling, their total training volume would be quite high. So you might have some of them who do really kind of low volume. But in my experience, the majority of them are doing a lot of riding, which doesn't leave room for a lot of um, weight training. And obviously burns a lot of energy. So you kind of do slim down. You do lose a lot of muscle here and there throughout the training cycle. But when it's, when it's kind of like now for me where it's like there's nothing immediate in the future, um, I don't even worry about it. I don't even worry about it. And I kind of do 
um, want to put on weight. I'm not worried to put on weight because especially when you're in the gym and your objective at that time is not really to get cardiovascularly, you know, to improve your VO2 max or whatever. You're trying to actually get stronger, maybe, maybe just get stronger. I think once you've been training for a certain amount of time, it, it becomes very difficult to, you obviously, you obviously have diminishing returns on your gains and you are, to make efficient progress, you've make, got to make sure that you're eating enough or in a calorie surplus. So there is a bit of weight gain, but that's something I look forward to, if that answers your question. That also kind of gives you a reserve to draw from whenever you're pushing your body, right? Like your body's oh, you not going to be... Yeah, yeah. Your body's not going to be atrophying on the first day or the second day. I mean, you, you have a robust body that... Um, you're pulling from in every single way from the muscular tissue to the calories mm. to the fat yeah all that stuff you're just pulling it all out totally and i think if you're thinking about if you're trying to make for me trying to make this something i've tried to make this something that is sustainable for myself long term and i think getting too skinny it just becomes i don't think it's sustainable man and it kind of a lot of issues come from being too just malnourished <laughs> or being in a chronic, I should say not now being in a chronic calorie deficit from riding too much. A lot of issues, mental issues, mood issues, a lot of issues can come up. So it's really not worth your health. It's really not worth your health. Um, and you know, for me, I do my best, not necessarily when my power is the highest, it's when I'm the happiest, when I want to actually be doing what I'm doing. And sometimes, you know, for me, I've kind of found a body weight range and a way of eating where it's it's kind of my set point where I really perform the best. And I kind of hover around there. I found ways to hover, like hover in that zone. And anytime I go outside of that, either too much um, or as in get kind of heavier than is comfortable for me, I don't feel good. And if I get too thin, I don't feel good. And I kind of have done that enough now where I, you know, you know the symptoms of when you're kind of out of balance and you kind of try and pull yourself into some sort of, balance body composition wise so yeah man i think it's great to get allow yourself to get a bit heavier enjoy the weight training make progress because if you're just going there you know if you're just doing four hours on the bike five hours on the bike six hours on the bike and then you're going into the gym you're doing an hour and a half of lifting weights you, you're kidding yourself you know you're kidding essentially you're just you become one of these people that just gets addicted to burning energy and that's you know you, you have a disorder at that point i've been there so i know it you're not making any progress you're not making any progress. I'm just let for me, I just know that now. I'm like, this is just del absolutely delusional. So yeah, I don't know what I'm going on about, bro, but yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. It's really interesting. I it's something I've as I kind of started my own journey, I'm more and more interested on on how people are managing that that balance between like having a very strong and capable body because I, I, I can feel it. I can feel my energy levels. I can feel my mm. mental state. I can feel I am a stronger, more well-rounded, more capable human right now than I was six months ago easily. And as I go down this path, I'm just kind of wondering, I want to continue to prioritize uh, you know, cycling, uh, that that's kind of my main thing, but also I'm 42, I'm looking at longevity. I want to have a body that's strong and capable and, uh, able to do whatever I want to do for many, many years. And so, yeah, it's just, for me, it's just a point of curiosity to see how other people are managing that. And we don't, I haven't at least, and maybe it's just because it's something I haven't personally been into, but I haven't 
I haven't been inclined to talk too much about what other athletes are doing from a weight training perception perspective. And so it is a point of interest for me. And I thought that was great. Totally. And just lastly for that, I just think simply it's just programming. It's literally just programming. And, um, you know, if, if I think about it really quickly, like trying to give a fast answer to how I think about it, it would just be programming, prioritizing certain things at certain times of the year. And then, as something gets closer, it's kind of the old model. You know, you start kind of wide and then as it gets closer, you just become more specific, more specific, aka longer riding, less lifting weights, longer riding, less lifting weights. And and that's really it. And then if you're kind of honest with yourself and you don't try and be this, you know, because you can go on the internet and be like, oh my God, you know, Jan Fredino trains 35 hours a week, whatever. So what? You know, that's not, for, for me, I, I, I've fallen into that trap and got nowhere. So just having a plan, Managing your energy well. I mean, managing your energy well is something I remember my mate, um, I saw, you know, this, uh, who was once my coach, his name's Eric Helms, kind of like a, one of the best bodybuilding coaches in the world. And he, I think he put up something years ago, years ago, it really stuck with me, where he was talking about the difference between, you know, an amateur athlete and a professional athlete is knowing how to manage your energy. In the amateur phase, it's kind of like, you're looking at the professional phase or professional athletes thinking they just smash themselves all the time. Five hour ride, go lift weights for two hours. But that's not the reality. So making that step up is kind of going, I have this amount of energy and I'm going to learn how to manage that and, and put it into areas that um, I think are going to help me develop um, physically, which is kind of like, okay, five months of the year, I'm really focusing on lifting weights and then moving on from that. Yeah. It sounds like a really well-rounded approach too and probably gives... I think variety is great for if you do the same thing over and over, you're going to get mentally fatigued, your muscles will be fatigued, your joints will be fatigued. And so having that variety is is probably hugely beneficial. So there's probably a lot of a lot of great truth to that. Let's talk about some bike packing. Um, we're going to jump ahead to the 2018 Indian Pacific wheel race. Uh, that was a really tough race. For well, it's a hard race in itself, but that was also the year that Mike Hall passed away, and you were the um, what unofficial winner of that of that race. Um, so he he passed away. Um, if my memory serves me, in twenty seventeen, I did oh, it in twenty eighteen. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I did it the year after that whole um, tragedy uh, happened. Okay. Well, that that. Uh, changes my my question and that approach to that one. That's tough. Uh, did y'all have the moment of silence on that on that ride? Oh yeah, definitely on the on the year I did it. Yeah. So what 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 happened there? Y'all stopped at a certain place, or was the moment of silence before the race happened? It was. Um, I think it was before the race. Before the race, but they started the race off at the um, time he passed away. So it was six twenty two oh. that the incident happened. So um, if my memory serves me right, we started at 6.22 probably with a moment of silence or a minute of silence, and then we took off. Yeah, which is also, that answers my question of why the Rhino run started at 6.22 a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was an, an interesting time. Well, let's, uh, I'm, I, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, um, but I mean, you know, Mike Hall's death was obviously a, a, a huge and impactful uh, event, uh, sad event that took place in our community. And I think at least for me and a lot of people I've talked to, it, it certainly, um, 
put that topic of the the safety factor and and brought to forefront front some of the dangers that are 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 real um, whenever you're talking about ultra endurance cycling and recently the what is it Transsiberica uh, introduced a mandatory stoppage time uh, with the goal of hopefully preventing sleep depri- deprivation. Have you heard of that? And do you have any thoughts on on where that and if that belongs in ultra endurance cycling? It's kind of like, I see the benefit of a mandatory sleep time, but I think overall it kind of takes the, I wouldn't personally enjoy a mandatory sleep time. I don't think I would want to be in a race where they, they implemented that. I think it would change it drastically. It can't, obviously it would make, it would take a lot of the danger out of it, but it's, you know, you're a free human being. You can do what you want. Like if I want to stay up for four days now, I can't, I I probably wouldn't be able to unless I was riding my bike. Um, But I enjoy the freedom of being able to manage uh, my effort and what I do out there and just having the, just the absolute freedom to go, I'm riding for two days or I'm riding for one day. I'm riding for half a day. And really, it's it's the responsibility is on the individual. I think that's the bottom line. You know, even though it could be beneficial, I think it boils down to the responsibilities on the individual and to manage their fatigue and take care of their own safety. Uh, there's obviously other factors out there like cars and that, but when it comes to your own safety, riding in a straight line, not making yourself dangerous on the road, that's something you have to uh, manage and take care of. No one else can take care of that for you at the bottom line. So that's how I look at it. And if you want to be safe, a lot of it too, for me, when I look at the safety aspect of it, I go, well, if I'm absolutely as fit as I can be and as strong as I can be and mentally prepared as I can be, I will be safe. I will be as safe as I can. And then also having the experience. I mean, experience is is, is a large part of it because you kind of learn when to push, when to pull back when you're getting kind of a bit, it's, it's going too far now where it's like you need to sleep. And you kind of learn that as you go. So that's my thoughts on the safety issue. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people agree with you. I mean, my first of all, I, I think it's their race and they can run it any way they want to and that's their prerogative. And then racers can obviously choose if they want to participate or not. And, and that's totally fine. Um, I also host my own race here in Texas and um, you know, safety is the number one factor. You know, I don't, as long as everybody comes back safe, I'm, I'm happy. Right. Um, but I, I think I tend to agree with you that it's a solo self-supported event endeavor. It's a choice that you make, you train for, you prepare for, and, and that's part of it. The safety aspect is a part of it. Managing yourself, your sleep, knowing your body, know when you need to sleep, know when you don't is is certainly a, a big 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 factor in in this equation of ultra endurance racing and so yeah it it, I, it shocked me honestly when i read it when i when i read that i was like i totally get it right i mean i understand why they did it but at the same time it does 
Um, it does seem to detract a little bit from the spirit of what we know to be ultra-endurance cycling, which is a big component of it is sleeping, sleep deprivation, pushing your body, your mind, and every your mechanicals, everything to the absolute limit. And you have to you have to determine where that limit is, right? Like that's up to you. And that's a part of that equation that it feels like a big part of the equation. It's, it's 95% of the equation, you know? So yeah, I think that's what people love about it. That's I definitely don't think sleep deprivation is something that you should try and achieve. Like it's some people have this like badge of honor, like you know I don't sleep for X amount of days or whatever. That's not something. Um, that's not how I look at sleep deprivation. Ideally, you don't want to be in some ruthless state of like sleep deprivation. You want to be fit enough. For me, it's like you want to be fit enough and strong enough that you can afford the luxury of being able to sleep and still be very fast that's kind of like the goal but it's, it's something you have to manage yourself and i don't think i think having a governing kind of body overlooking that takes takes that away which is uh probably for me wouldn't be that enjoyable yeah i think a lot of people agree with you and of course you are free to have your own opinions um Let's, uh, I'm going to just breeze through some of your accomplishments, mostly so uh, the audience can kind of get a feel for you and, and what you did before going into Rhino Run. So after 2018, you went to 2019, uh, you did the Trans Am here in America. And let me see if I got this stat correctly. You set a new course record in doing so. 16 days, nine hours, 56 minutes, I believe, if my memory is correct. Um was that your first time in America? I had been to America a few times before that, just hanging out with friends and uh, other holidays and trips. So it wasn't my first time. Yeah. Well, I assume it was your first time to run a ride across the entire country. And I guess Definitely. my question is, what is what was your impression of America uh, riding across the country, seeing the scenery, the, the traffic, the people, the food? What was your overall impression? I loved it. Oh, yeah. I thought America was. I loved it. I thought America was great, man. Especially on that course, when you're going through like Oregon, um, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Colorado. That's kind of like that was some of the best things of best riding I've ever done in my whole life for sure. And even when you get into like Kansas, that's a, that's an awesome experience. Uh, where I was like Kentucky and that, it, it was all really an awesome experience um, that I really loved. I loved the food. I loved the hospitality. I loved the people. I have nothing bad to say about my experience, man. I thought it was awesome. That's good. Usually if someone's going to say something bad about that route, it's usually Kansas, but you even like Kansas. so <laughs> No, I loved Kansas, man. It felt, I felt like Alice in Wonderland. Like I was like, this is great, you know. Half the time it was like there's a storm in the background, like crazy sunsets, sunrises, wind. Like you felt like you were on the edge of the earth or something sometimes. So it was kind of – I really – I had done a bit of riding like that, like really flat, long roads. So I was really looking forward to it. And especially because the, the course is really hilly. So having a few days of kind of like not so many climbs, I was I was like, I'm looking forward to this. That's so interesting. You're the only one I've ever heard uh, say good things about Kansas. So there you go, Kansas. Mm. You got your new spokesperson. I love you, Kansas. <laughs> yeah, I love it. The people were, the people were um, awesome, man. That's great, man. That's really good to hear. I just don't get online with them. That's what I always tell people, man. People are great unless you meet them on the internet, right? If you meet them out in yeah. the real world, people are fucking it's awesome. Story. It's yeah, just a different. Yeah. Got to get off the fucking internet. So 
in 2018, you won Indian Pacific Wheel Race. After that, in 2019, you set a new record on the Trans Am. At what point did you realize that you're fucking good at ultra endurance cycling? I still haven't realized it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me yeah, be no, the first to tell you. <laughs> it's hard. It's, you know, I don't know if it's a human thing, but you kind of feel like when I finished the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, I was kind of like, well, I was filming the year before, so I was like, I saw the top, I saw the top two guys go through. I knew every single stop. I knew everything about the route. I'd driven it, probably driven it twice. Um, so I was like, mm, could be a fluke. That was kind of my mindset, bit of a fluke. Then I was like, all right, let me do the Indians. I mean, the Trans Am. Did that, and I was like, okay. Still, part of me still felt I don't know if I could ever get rid of it. It was kind of like, oh, I was just really lucky, you know. And then I always had that kind of in the back of my mind. And then going into the Rhino Run, I did some things in between the Trans Am and the Rhino Run. And then going into the Rhino Run, I probably now is the most I've ever felt like not, I don't want to say 100% confident in my abilities, but I feel more confident than I was before. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's, you're right. That's a human trait that we have. And maybe it's a good thing that something inside of us that keeps us pushing, even if we're winning, we're still mm. pushing, but it's hard to call the 2019 Trans Am a fluke because it is 16 days on a bike, right? It's easy to have a fluke in like maybe three days or a five day event, but an event like that, I don't know how long it's been going on a decade or you know longer and you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have done it. And you set a new record. It's it's hard, you know, from outsider to be like that. That's not a fluke, right? That that is a two week, more than two week effort where you had to, a lot of things had to go right. Maybe maybe that's where you choke it up, chalk it up. Maybe you're just like, oh, I got lucky with the weather. I got lucky yeah. with the wind. I got you know some good conditions and that kind of stuff. Mm. But that's what it feels like. I think it's not really a bad thing to have because it kind of leaves you feeling more grateful for everything that worked out. You know, you're like, wow, well, like I had. I was fortunate enough to not have some sort of snowstorm, fortunate enough to beat things like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was, it, felt, it feels like when you're on it that you're lucky. If, you know, you have some really hard patches that you have to really push for. But, you know, I had no, you know, I had a few things crashed, hit, got hit by a car, but I had no major, major issues, like no major mechanicals, no major, you know, I had diarrhea from, uh, a lot of it too, which was, but to me, it's kind of like, well, sometimes that happens. You know, you get diarrhea. I had experienced that in, in Australia, but only for like uh, probably the last three days. Whereas when I was in America, I had diarrhea from day one all the way up to Kansas, you know, chronic, di chronic diarrhea, but which kind of was kind of nice for me because when I got to Kansas, I started shitting solid, which made me feel great. And then I was like, wow, I've, it's, it almost paced me nicely. So then I was like, I had, I started to have more energy, which was, it's quite a bizarre thing to experience on such a long event. But I started to feel like, oh, wow, I'm feeling better. You know, I'm going to the toilet. This is great. I don't have to stop every five minutes and shit in the bush, you know, and I felt cleaner. It was great. Yeah. Plus your body is probably absorbing those calories because it's staying in your body faster or longer. So yeah, yeah, you're yeah getting... it just settles, settles down a little bit. I think just the adrenaline, I think probably for me, what it is, is, you know, I didn't really know how to manage that kind of adrenaline and, and just, everything on day one and then you combine that with you know burning a, a hectic amount of food and drinking lots of sugar and just it's a it's it's a lot on your stomach and then boom you just once you start it's hard to stop 
Yeah. Freaking awesome, dude. All right. So let's jump ahead. We're going to do uh, the 20 and obviously 2020, every the world shut down. And then in 2021, for you, it was all about a 24-hour uh, world record, um, which honestly is something I I never have heard about. Obviously, it makes sense. How many miles or kilometers can you ride in 24 hours? Period in a statement. Um, where did this idea come on your radar that you wanted to, to try this? Well, at the time, I was living in Melbourne. I always loved 24-hour rides. Kind of, That's kind of what I got into, which I would like the biggest adventure was 24-hour type stuff. And there was a the guy who used to have the 24-hour record lived in Victoria, in Melbourne, where I was. His name was um, Mitch Anderson. He was a professional triathlete, professional Ironman. He used to be a professional Ironman. And at the time, the record was 896 kilometers. I don't know what that is in miles. And I don't know. I was kind of like, you know what? <laughs> Naively, I was like, I think I can do that. Um, and I wanted to try it. Something in me wanted to try that to take that on, which I don't know how I thought of that because he was a professional triathlete. He was a professional Ironman. And the guy who attempted it in Australia before him was a gold medalist rower named Drew Jim, like a freak athlete, like insa- like just physically a freak. And I've ridden with him. He's a, he's a, it's scary when you ride with him, man. He's just, it's like his lung capacity is in off. You know, I can't even describe it. He's just a freak human. So they were the two guys who had gone up for it. Obviously, one was the world record holder at the time. And I thought, you know what, I want to try this. So in 2020, I thought, I don't really want to do another long distance thing. I kind of wanted to just focus on something shorter, which was 24 hour. And uh, I got into it. And then I was like, you know what, I may as well try and go for the world record. I don't know how I came up with that, but I was like, all right, I'll do that. And uh, that was compromised. You know, that took, that was a project I worked on in 2020. Probably pretty much from the end of 2019 all the way up until the end of 2021. So it was almost two years. It was about two-year operation, and I made two attempts at it. Uh, one that went horrifically wrong very fast, which was really heartbreaking for me. And then the second one went really well, but it still felt in that period of time, the record went from 896 kilometers to over 1,000. So. I, I was able to surpass 896 um, and go over 900 kilometers, but I wasn't able to do a thousand, which to me wasn't a big surprise, but it worked out well. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be fucked up because the whole time in mean, those years that you're training, it was 895. And then while you're in the process of doing it, I don't remember his name, he jumped it up to, I think, 1,015 kilometers or something like that. Oh, the timing was off its head, man. Like, get this. I did the first one and missed it, right? I, I, I had like stomach issues within two hours. I was just vomiting and just crazy for like 16 hours. I only was able to do like 600 days or whatever and I pulled out. But, uh, and then I was like, I had a realization after that event. I was like, you know what? I didn't, I wasn't able to do what I knew I could do. And that was really annoying me because if I had given my best effort and only got 600 days, which I'd done before anyway on a road bike, um, I'd be like, great, I can leave this to bed. But I couldn't leave it because I was like, man, I didn't even get to do four hours at my best effort. I could only do like one hour. So I was like, you know what? I need to try again. But I was like, I'll have a little break. And then in that amount of time, the record went from 8.96 to like 9.12 to like 9.21. And I was still, or 9.20 or something, I forgot exactly. I was still kind of like, you know what? I can, you know, 
doing the math on the calculator, I was like, it's bumping up the average speed a little bit from like 37 to like 38 to 39 or whatever, kilometers per hour. I don't know what that is in miles. And then the day, the exact day I started training, man, that to do the second attempt, I remember I got off the trainer, I went outside and I was eating breakfast. First training session I started, I opened my phone and he he literally had just done a thousand kilometers that exact day. <laughs> like literally the moment I started training, he had just taken it to a thousand. And then I was like, oh, fuck, man. I was like, well, now I have to do it now. Even though I know I'm not going to be able to achieve that, I was like, I have to. Which was kind of proof to myself because I had thought in my head, it was like, this isn't even about the record anymore. I just want to do what I know I'm, I'm capable of doing. So it was kind of good, man. It took a lot of the stress off my back because I was like, I'm not going to average 42 kilometers an hour for 24 hours. Right. That, yeah. I took the, the world record kind of at least mentally off the table and you focus on just doing your best. One thing I thought was really interesting about, about your two attempts uh, is the first one you did on a closed track, like a, a moto track, uh, a big circle track that people are familiar with in America, NASCAR. I don't know over yeah, there, but very similar. Uh, yeah. So, and then the second one you did was like just like a fucking neighborhood or something. And you just, you know, for people who are listening, when you don't do 24 hours, you're not going like just down one road. Like you're just in a fucking neighborhood. I think it was like a 4.5 kilometer loop. And there's cars and there's people and there's traffic. And I I guess I have two questions there. One, is there any governing body that says what kind of course it can or can't be on? I'm guessing not since since you did it on both. No, there but is. Then, there is. And then, yeah, why make that choice? That, that was super weird or interesting. Maybe not weird. <laughs> so it was... There's a governing body that governs it. It's called the World Ultra Cycling Organization or something. I think that's kind of the name. And there's different records. There's outdoor track, which is a closed loop. Cars can't be on it. And then there's outdoor road. There's outdoor road, which cars have access to, but it has to be a closed loop. It has to be a loop. Um, and so for the first one, it, I was, I was going, it was an outdoor track record. So I had, it had to be on a closed track. And I was fortunate enough that I had, I had a friend who worked at Ford, the motor company here in Melbourne, and they, had a, they have a testing facility on site. So essentially, it's a five-kilometer velodrome perfect like absolutely what ended up happening was i was training on a criterium circuit up in brisbane but and i was under the impression that i was allowed to do it there i'd been in contact but then about a month before i got an email saying you're not allowed to do it there so i was scrambling trying to find a location in the last four weeks so my mate pulled through was able to get us onto the track which was really hard because it's like a secret track you know what i mean like they test all their prototypes it's like I couldn't try, I was able to try it out for two laps. That's the only riding I had done on there. So I did two laps and I was like, all right, whatever, this is it. So that was the first one. The second one, because I wasn't actually going for an official record, because I was like, I'm not doing 1,000 Ks, there's no point. And, you know, getting all the, just all the formalities, I was like, away with that, I'm not doing that. And I originally was going to do it at this one kilometer criterium circuit up in Brisbane, because it, I had done a lot of training up there because my mate lived up there, Jake, and I would go stay with him and I would just exclusively ride on this one kilometer criterium circuit, you know, 200Ks, 250Ks, getting used to it, 1K, 1 for months. Um, before that, I was exclusively on the 4.5 kilometer circuit near my house. Like I'd park up there at like four in the morning and just get out and be like, all right, I'll do six hours on this thing. 
So I was like, I'd done all my training on that one. I knew that it was the fastest for power because I had a power meter and I, I actually knew how much more power was required versus the two courses, outdoor loops I had. But it was, I was, I met a guy at that um, criterium track, the one kilometer one, one day. It was like a world champion track dude named Jordan Kirby. And he, he was doing aerodynamic testing. And we were like, I was like telling him, he's like, all right, come out and we'll do some testing. And I was like, cool. It makes you feel like a pro athlete, eh? So I went out there, we're doing this testing. And, and I was like on the course and I, I, it's like I hit my maximum limit on it. I was like, I'm over this course, man. I'd done way too many kilometers on it. I was like, I can't even just doing two laps on this course makes me feel sick now. I don't want to do it. Even though I knew it was the fastest probably by for the same power, you'd probably go a kilometer faster because it's just, it's very fast. Luckily for me, about a month before I had a friend named Blake who did a fundraising 24-hour ride on that circuit, the 4.51. And he did really well. Like, I mean, he didn't really train a lot. He did like 600 Ks or something. And we were there and uh, it was close to our house. All of our mates were there. They had a little, you know, like pergola set up, you know, tent set up. And I thought, this is awesome. So then I just made a decision, man. I was like, you know what? I'm just, my gut was telling me, go with what you, you're comfortable with. Go with what you enjoy. You know the area. You know the, like, I know the people on the street. Like I know the dogs, I know who comes out of their house at 6 a.m. Which I know every single person on that loop because I spent, I've done, I've probably done eight, 9,000 kilometers on that 4.5 kilometer loop. So I know everyone. Like I used to start, people would go to work, come home and see me and they'd be like, come out and be like, what is going on there? Like you'd have people coming like, like I live at, you know, 144. Let me, what, what's going on here? What, what, what operation is happening? So, <laughs> It just made sense to me at the time. I was like, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice a bit of speed, but I'll make up for it in feeling comfortable and having my friends there, having been able to have the support there that I, I needed at the time. So that's kind of how the decision happened. And it worked out perfectly, man. Seriously, it worked out perfectly. We had terrible wind, terrible heat. And for some reason, it just it was like divine intervention. Everything just worked out that day. Love it. For my American friends listening, so you did 905 kilometers in 24 hours. I just did the Google math. That's 560 miles, which is fucking crazy to think about. Like 905, like I just, ah, I just can't even imagine. Like that's so far in 24 hours. Were you stopping for potty breaks or were you peeing on the bike? Be honest. Oh, no, I was stopping, man. I was stopping. I'm yeah. No, I'm very bad at pissing. I've never been able to piss on the bike. <laughs> like I need, I like pissing honestly is the hardest thing on that event. And I wasn't even like, I stopped like 20 or 30 minutes. I forgot how many minutes I stopped. But really, man, honestly, it goes so fast because I'd like literally, it's like having an F1 pit crew. I'd like hop off. Someone would take my bike. I'd run into the bushes. I'd be in this skin suit trying to piss, but there's so much pressure on your nuts and that whole area that it becomes really hard to pierce. So you're spending minutes trying to squeeze out piss, minutes. And then you're hopping back on, putting chamois cream on, you know, like people are feeding you food, drinks, top, go, boom, boom, boom. And within you know it, you do that four or five times, you've already lost 20, 25 minutes. So I think perfecting the event, people learn how to piss on the bike and really just get it absolutely right. But um, yeah, man. I don't know what to say. It was, it was a beautiful event, and now looking back on it, it was it was cool because when I first started training for the event, 
I, I, my starting point was literally like, uh, probably 19 miles per hour. That was like my maximum for like a couple of hours on the road bike. That's like, that was like max effort. So it was really cool to go through the process of like that kind of fitness to getting a time trial bike, learning how to ride the time trial bike and just consistently, um, doing a year of training almost. And then having that first attempt fail and going, okay, what did I do wrong in my training? You know, what can I improve? Then having a good friend that I'd known for years become my coach, he really revolutionized my training at that time. And I was just like, I made huge progress going into that second one. And I learned a lot from that. And then I was able to um, do the 900. So it was, it was massive learning for me. Yeah, that's a, that's freaking incredible. And it's really, it's fascinating for me. I, I never, uh, never heard of anyone trying it. I think, um, if anyone ever makes a movie about you, they're going to have some great fodder to work with. If you, if you look at, uh, you know, you stepping off your first training ride for your 24 hour, your second 24 hour attempt, and then sitting down and pulling up the phone and realizing that someone just got a thousand K and then, you know, foreshadowing to the, the Rhino run where you won by 17 fucking seconds. I mean, someone could write a fucking Hollywood movie about, about you and this sport. It's, it's some crazy shit, right? Yeah. 17 minutes, not 17 seconds. Oh yeah. 17 minutes. Yeah. Thank you for catching me. I told you I have dyslexia and ADHD. I think I mentioned that and I, that's all, we all have that anyway. Eh? Um, <laughs> but, Good. I'm just telling one. No, no, no. It. it was like that. It was like that. It was like that. Like honestly, you couldn't make half the shit up. Um, and even the even the first attempt that failed, you couldn't even make that up, man. It was like we were like a rap group on tour. There was like we're pulling up to Ford. There's like 30 of us, dude, just to watch one guy riding around in a circle. And it's like there was coffee machines, you know like grills getting set up, you know, chips getting deep fried. Like I had, we had deep fryers and speakers and like, it was like an event, man. And then, and somehow in this thing, I was like, Oh fuck, I'm writing. You know, yeah. I was like, I need to write I this, do thing. this. And I was organizing the whole thing too, just with my mate. So for weeks I was just like full time organizing this event. I forgot I was even writing. I was in the car on the way there with my mate. And I was like, Oh, like, I got a ride, man. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, fuck, I totally forgot about that. You know? Yeah. So yeah, bro. No, honestly, we're actually in the in talk right now about making a movie for like um yeah, long project that's upcoming, but it's gonna happen one day. So I'm excited because there was so much crazy, craziest things that went down that whole time. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to watch it. You uh you were involved in an Indian Pacific wheel race, uh, film. You mentioned, um, sounds like you got another one. And then, uh, the don't, uh, so I was really impressed with Rhino run because shortly after the race finished, they've already produced a film, a 45 minute film. I bought it and I've, I've watched it twice. It's so fucking well done. I'm just, I'm really impressed as an event organizer and, and someone who creates content. I'm like, those guys are, are know what they they're doing. It. They fucking nailed it. Absolutely. It's mm. a great film. And uh, again, anybody who wants to piggyback onto this conversation and go uh, go watch the film, it's called Don't Look Back and it's on Vimeo. Um, and it's I think I paid $12. I just bought it because I knew I'd watch it many times. And 
easily worth the twelve dollars. So the the Rhino Run is uh, has been a long time coming. Um, they were originally going to have the first iteration in twenty twenty, then twenty twenty one, but it didn't officially happen until twenty twenty two, which is uh, obviously the year that that you did it. Now, um, when did it come on to your all good over there? Yeah, I'm just making sure i got enough battery in my phone, but it should say I have low battery. We're good. Sorry for cutting you off. When did it come onto my radar? Yeah, yeah. What what put that on your radar and, and what was your motivation to, to do that? Uh, much different. It's an off-roading event, lots of sand. I mean, it's much different than anything I think that you've done. So wh- 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 when did you find out about that one and why did you want to take a stab at it? I literally, dude, was, I was at the 7-Eleven. I don't know if you have 7-Eleven in America. You think you do. It's where all Um, good stories start or finish. (laughs) I was literally behind the work truck, the work truck at 7-Eleven, waiting for these people to come out and get food. And Rhino, the organizer, Ryan Flynn, my um, good friend, told me, and he was like, um, Rhino runs on, telling me about everyone who's coming. They had like a star-studded lineup. And he was like, you should do it. And I was like, mm. you know, I've been training, but I was scaffolding at the time and I was kind of like tired. I was like, no, nah, I don't know, man. I've never, I had never, I've never ridden on gravel, never ridden a gravel bike. You know, this is in like, like six months. Like, how am I going to possibly get ready for this thing? And he was like convincing me, telling me about everyone who's coming. And I just thought, you know what? It's a sick crew of people coming. I thought this is a great crew of people coming together to ride their bikes. That was initially what drew me in. I came home. I told my partner and she was like, we had been planning on going a overseas for like a holiday, but with the whole kind of shit show the world was going through, it was becoming increasingly more unlikely that um, we were going to go and just, you know, no one wants to fly, man, and go through, jump through hula hoops just to get on the plane. So we were like, maybe we should leave it. And she was, and she was also like, just go for it, just do it. It sounds like a great opportunity. So I was like, all right, cool. So I called Rhino and I was like, uh, I'll do it, you know. And initially, it was just because of the people, the people he had there, and then that's how I got roped in. When you say the people, does it attract you to the event because it's an opportunity for you to meet them, or an opportunity for you to race them, or both? Primarily, it was meeting them. You know, they were bringing these um, athletes from Uganda who we had previously raised money for, and I felt connected to them, so I wanted to meet them. That was really exciting to me. Second to that, he had all these like um, big off-road names on the roster. I also wanted to meet them. I wanted to meet them because I've heard so much about them. And then I thought, you know, it'd be cool also to race them. Uh, it'd be cool to race them. So there was there was multiple multiple uh, motivations to it. Yeah, we should we should pause and give you some credit because you're talking about is I think it's the Masaka Cycling Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I believe, uh, you raised $26,000 whenever you were doing your world record attempt. Is that correct? For, yeah, for I that forgot if it was 26. I forgot the exact amount. It was either 30 or 26. I'm not sure. I might be talking okay. rubbish, but, um, yeah, my, my friend, another good friend, Ross Burridge actually started the organization. He runs the hidden athlete podcast. He, 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 created that whole thing so uh it was just it seemed like the right fit for me at the time to support him and his organization and then you know i don't really do much bro i literally just rode around and circle and promoted it but everyone was just pitching in money some big donations and on the day everyone came together to um 
get the money up as high as possible, especially when ship when ship was hitting the fan. I was just like, look, a zombie riding the bike. That's when the money really came in. It was like a show. Um, so yeah, so I really wanted to meet those guys. Yeah, you. I mean, you did a, a great thing, and obviously, you're not alone. Like you said, it it, it does take a village. Um, and then another cool thing about Rhino Run is that it's a free event, but the proceeds go towards uh, the Masaka Cycling Cl- Club as well. And um, so just some really neat stuff uh, that you guys are doing, and, and it should be noted. Um, so describe the Rhino Run, describe the course, describe the terrain for, I mean, only 32 people signed up. Y'all were the first ones to, to race it. Um, so most of the people listening won't have any clue what it's like. So how would you describe it to people? Oh man, it was really, uh, I don't know. See, I'm not probably the best person to describe it because I had no experience of gravel prior to, well, it's not that I had no experience of gravel, but my experience of gravel was probably less than 40 miles total in my whole life training. So my kind of scope of gravel was really small. And it was only when I got there that I, I did my longest gravel ride when I got there, which was two, and up, two hours, two and a half hours out and back on the course each way. So that, that was my first real long hit at gravel. And it was terrifying, man. It was bumpy. It was brutal on my body. It was it was terrifying. So the course itself starts in a place called Plantenburg Bay and kind of heads north uh, up South Africa to the border of Namibia and then into the through the desert into the capital of Mintook. And it was it changed a lot. It, it changed a lot. So the start was I don't know if you'd call it smooth. It definitely wasn't smooth gravel man. It was, it was, you know, rough, bumpy. You'd have a tiny bit of smooth sections as you could kind of start in the course. Um, some pretty, like, very hilly, you know, within the first 700-odd Ks, you know, you're climbing over 10,500 metres. Um, so very lots of climbing. It's You're either going up or down. Some pretty rocky descents, massive, you know, loose gravel rocks. And then it kind of, as soon as you got crossed into that border of Namibia, you know, a bit of tarmac here. In the first 700, there was actually quite a big chunk of tarmac. There was about 40% of it was tarmac. So you had 40% of tarmac, 60% gravel in that first 700 Ks. And then it kind of transitions pretty much primarily to gravel. And then there was about 150 odd Ks in Namibia, which was tarmac one stretch. But once you get into Namibia, it's kind of like it, it kind of plays a trick on your mind because it as you cross into the border, there's some sand as you approach the border, some really loose sand and that really steep, rocky descents. And then it's kind of like smoothish gravel for a few hundred Ks. And then you have that 150K stretch of tarmac, which is quite nice, but it's like half of it is uphill anyway. But then after that, that last chunk of the race, I don't know how many Ks it'd be, maybe five, six, seven hundred Ks, six hundred Ks maybe, is just like is an experience. That's probably the best way I can say it, man. It's either extremely corrugated roads. The type of roads, honestly, you wouldn't even drive your car on because it'd probably just snap your suspension. Or really loose sand. So you're you're navigating really loose sand or just heinous corrugations. And that kind of lasts until really the last 10 Ks of the race. 
So that's really what it's like. What about, um, you know, just from watching the film, a lot of what they showed was just arid, expansive, desert-type landscapes, no trees to speak of, really. Is that pretty indicative of the whole course? It just seems very lonely and isolating. and Definitely in, the, definitely in um, Namibia, yeah. In, in Namibia, it gets pretty, uh, very nothing out there. Maybe a few trees here and there. But you're also kind of lucky. There's a few stretches there where it gets kind of very isolated and you have to be very careful with if you have enough water because or you'll just have to you'll get stuck at a place and you have to stay there until shit opens. So you've got to have good planning. But you're kind of lucky that once you get through a section like that, there was probably one section for me like that that lasted probably a 24-hour period where no shops, you're not seeing anyone. You might see one person, two people the whole time. Then you probably have a few hundred Ks, which is really ice, like you're really quite barren, some massive sand dunes, but there's a lot of tourists. So there's a lot of traffic on some of these roads because they're just tourist roads. And then it kind of gets isolated again, but there's definitely p- bits on there where it's super isolated. In South Africa, uh, you, you kind of have bits that are isolated, but still every couple hundred K, 150 K, you're coming into contact with the town. Yeah, that's good. What were your goals? What were your goals, your hopes, your dreams uh, leading into this event in particular? And and what was your training like to help you accomplish those goals and get ready for that event? So my goal initially was like probably my primary goal was just to have fun and get the most out of myself. That was kind of that was that was the main thing. I was very aware that I was out of my league in terms of gravel. And I, and I just thought, you know, I'm really out of my league. I've never done this type of stuff before. I just want to have a great performance and uh, have fun. That was really important to me. So they were kind of my goals. In terms of training, I was very fortunate at the time that before I started training, I was in contact with a guy named uh, Matt from a company in Canada, training company in Canada called resilience, high performance coaching, you know, we were in contact and, you know, we're going back and forth and I said, all right, let's hop on Skype. Let's just chat. So we're chatting and we were chatting about training, chatting about, you know, just ultra and stuff like that. What we thought about it, how, you know, training methods, how can it be improved, yada, yada, yada. And then I said to him, look, this opportunity's come up to do the Rhino run. I'm going to take it. Do you want to work with me on training? And he was like, yeah, totally. So he kind of came on board as uh, my coach for that. And that was great. We, because we just kicked off, man. We had a great relationship. We were talking every week, talking training, talking how I'm feeling, talking about uh, what's probably the best course of action moving forward. And it was just, that's kind of, he set the tone for the training. The training itself, I had, was coming off scaffolding. I wasn't in the best shape. I was really kind of beaten and broken from scaffolding. So I kind of defaulted into what I knew, which was just riding on the road. So I had a gravel bike, but I exclusively really rode it just on the road itself. And it was nothing really special, man. It was just riding and increasing my duration as the weeks went on and training to, you know, I had a heart rate uh, monitor. I had a power meter, just watching the power numbers, watching my heart rate. And I had learned from previous, my previous 24-hour event the difference between the first one and the second one was the first one i had 
I just rode hard all the time. I was just in pain, chronic pain all the time. I'd ride, I'd just ride hard. I'd just ride on race speed. I'd just see 38 kilometers per hour and I'd just be like, I just have to hold that. And I was doing that multiple times a week, really broke my body down up and, uh, and had some injuries and I, I didn't know how to take it easy. When I went into the second attempt with my other coach friend, Stephen Lane, he was like, man, you need to chill, you need to chill out. Like he was like to me, you need to chill out. You need to learn how to ride slow. And then when it's time to ride hard, ride hard. So I went through that process and I seen how massive that makes a difference. Just learning to take it easy. And then also when it's time to go, you go. But when it's time to ride easy, just ride easy. You know, you don't need to you don't need to prove to yourself every day that you, you know, you're just extremely fit with all these power numbers or whatever. I just learned how to ride easy. So going into this training cycle with my my new coach, friend, I was like, I knew that. And he was big on that too, kind of being very polarized in the training. So I was just building off of that, you know, doing long, lots of long, predominantly lots of long, easy rides, um, just learning how to eat on the bike again, getting the kilometers in, and then also mixed in there with um, some really short, hard efforts. That wasn't a lot of them, but it was just consistently in there week in, week out, which I honestly I, I find to be great just in terms of uh, being able to ride fast for a long time. And... He was great. He really pushed me to new levels. I definitely took it to a new level in terms of how much work I was able to sustain week in, week out. Just be consistent and sustain high amounts of work each week. He definitely helped me achieve that. And I think that probably was the biggest thing for me on the Rhino Run going in. Yeah, that's awesome. So on the morning of the race, uh, race day, you've got your hopes and your dreams, your goals, you've got all your training behind you. What, what are you feeling on, on that morning of, are you, are you terrified? Are you excited to get going? What fears do you have? Like t- take me through that morning. Bro, I was shitting my pants. I was shitting my pants. I was shitting my pants for a few days before going into it too, because it became really uh, apparent to me that I was, I should have rode on gravel. You know, I really, that, that, one little ounce of doubt started creeping into my mind, like, fuck, I really should have trained on gravel. I really should have spent time on gravel. I should have learned how to do this. I should have. But I was just like, you know what? Who cares? I was trying to bring my mind back to I'm in great shape. I'll be able to handle it. Just and okay. So I was dealing with that, which was kind of really making me quite scared. So the days leading into it, I was like, man, I just want to go already. But it was really just trying to settle myself, calm down. Uh, you know, just just trying to settle myself and calm down. But the morning of, I was like packing my stuff up. I remember I was eating breakfast, getting caffeinated, called my mom, went down there. I was very nervous and I just wanted it to get going, man. And I knew that for me, I had to just, as soon as I was able to go, I just had to start riding hard because I knew if I had a bit of doubt in there and I let that overcome me within the first few minutes of the race, it would just set the tone for the whole race and I probably wouldn't, uh, get the most out of myself. Yeah. It's gotta be, you know, whenever you're signing up to put your, push your body and your mind, you've done this before, you know, like you're not, this isn't your first race you're signing up for. So you know that you're going to be putting yourself in some really difficult positions, you know, and I feel like that's gotta be daunting to some extent. Do you, do you ever feel the weight of that or, or huge man? The weight of it is massive. And 
I'm fortunate that I've gone through the experience a few times. So I kind of, like, I could probably write down what I, w- I could probably forecast what I'm probably going to emotionally experience before because I've experienced, you know, I've gone through it. So, you know, the doubt, the anxiety, the, the doubt's really hard to overcome. You know, feeling anxious, second guessing everything, uh, feeling a bit ill in the stomach, uh, and probably just dealing with thoughts of, you know, just a large volume of doubt in terms of thoughts comes in. But I think that's just, I think once you're, I don't know what I boil that down to, but like you said, it's such a big physical uh, undertaking. And I think when you're not naive to it and you've gone through it, it's like your body puts up this last bit of defense kind of like trying to just get you to just don't do it, <laughs> don't do it. Like we don't want to go through this. So it kind of throws up this kind of defense wall that you have to kind of just kick down and just go, don't worry, like we're all good. Um, and you have to get through that, you know, and sometimes that doesn't go away as soon as you start the race. It, 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 for me, it can like for that first day of the Rhino run, within I, I was dealing with that for a very long time, man, like, debilitating anxiety on day one, even 150 Ks into it, just like, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? I don't know if I want to be here. The kind of anxiety that makes you want to throw up and you just kind of just trying to settle yourself and just, just keep riding, just keep, it's all good. It'll get better. It'll get better. And just dealing with that. So yeah, that's your it's strategy, kind of better. Huh? It's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of um, easier when you don't know what you're in for, but once right. you kind of body, <laughs> once your body has a taste of what it's about to go through, I think it has the memory of the physical trauma and it doesn't want to go through that. So that comes up in, um, it shows up in terms of the way it shows up is in doubt, trying to get you to stop. Yeah. So it's not a bad thing to me. To me, it's just a mechanism, you know, it's a safety mechanism. It just me. I kind of, it's, it's kind of good. It means your body's functioning. You're not a psychopath. Right. Yeah. You're not a psychopath. Check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you're functioning. That, I, your body wants to survive. I love the way you point put that though. I mean, it's it's your Which body is actually and your good mind. Too. Just just quick, just quickly. Sorry please, to cut you off. Please, that please. it's it's a good thing because that kind of it means your body's functioning and and the same process is going to be is going to be the reason that you're able to do what you want to do. Like that defense mechanism is going to be the same system that will allow you to push yourself to your absolute limit because your body will eventually, it feels almost like it goes, okay, he's not stopped. We weren't able to stop this person. He's override it with his will. So now it almost switches and, and it goes, okay, we really have to just start, you know, operating on a high level to make sure that he's able to finish this and, and survive. So it's kind of a double edge. What kind of hinders you at the start if you can get over it, will almost benefit you. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I've I've talked about on this podcast many many times about essentially what I always say is you override your brain and you just start start going, and your brain will reject, and your body will start to ache, and you'll have all these manifestations of stop, stop, stop. But if you can push through that, eventually your body and your brain say, okay we're going to support this body and this brain. We're going to, we're going to keep going. But I, I've never heard anyone talk about that, that kind of that daunting wall that you have to that big hurdle that you have to overcome in the beginning to acknowledge that you're about to do something really hard. And you have the, 
the erase that endurance effort, that mindset starts before you even start pedaling. You're like, you just have to overcome. I think I call it fear. You know, I mean that fear. Of, fear. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Good I, stuff. It, it's it's just it's that's the whole overcoming the fear for me on that, especially that race was just the whole thing, and getting over that wall. You know, sometimes it's it's not instantly, man. Like I said, like it can take. You, but the great thing is, I mean, you don't even necessarily have to overcome it that's the great thing is like you can ride with that it might not be comfortable but you can ride with that and i think having that kind of security within yourself to know it doesn't really matter what i'm thinking it doesn't really matter how scared i am it doesn't really matter how anxious i am because at the end of the day i'm operating this now i'm operating it you know like i'm the one pedaling i'm the one in control here uh, if you're not able to kind of to take a detached approach to what's happening mentally in terms of your act, brain activity, thoughts, then you're in trouble. You're really in trouble. You're going to have a shit time. So, but that's obviously something that can be worked on when you train because you can really work on aspects of that when you train because you know that that's what you're going to deal with. I, I don't know about other people, but in my experience, that's 95% of it is just dealing with your own mental activity and learning that it doesn't really matter what is happening for you mentally, whether you're excited, whether you're sad, whether you're, you're going to experience the whole range, every single emotion under the sun that can be felt, every single thought that can be thought, chances are you're going to experience it because you're going to the absolute extreme. But if you're comfortable with that and you just know that's a part of the process, it really, you kind of have this kind of like, mm, kind of approach, you know, and uh, it doesn't really matter, which is cool. Yeah. I think, I think learning to train, you know, when things get uncomfortable, you, you take revelry in that, right? Like you say, okay, this is, this is what I came here for. This is what I pushed so hard for was to feel this way or to, to hurt and to be hungry and tired and sleep deprived. For me, I try to reframe it in my brain and, 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 and just be like, man, I earned this. This is what I, this is what I came here for. And I think recreating that in, in, in training is, is a great tool. Like don't wait till, you know, your whoop, your whoop says, okay, you're in recovery and you can go ride. No. I mean, if you feel like shit, you got the flu, you got diarrhea, you're throwing up that day, go for a fucking ride and, and see how you do, yeah. you know, and you know, it's definitely relative That's, to stages. It's stages. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's all relative to where you're at. Like, and I think at the start of your journey, you really do need to, you never want to stop, but like, you know, a large part of your training is just overcoming that, you know, like where it's like, I don't want to ride. Right. Like, I mean, if you can't ride when you don't want to ride, that's a huge issue. Yeah, that's a problem. Like if you, need 50, if you need 50 cooperative conditions for you to ride, aka nice <laughs> weather, mentally feeling stable, um, have physical energy, the more of these things you require to ride, that becomes a real issue out there on the road. So uh, you just need to, you just need to, have repeated exposure to the process of just overcoming all this shit and you can recreate that not to not to make it deliberately hard for yourself in training but if you're training correctly consistently long term this will happen by nature of the training process it's just a part of it so it's 100 it's not about doing 30 hours a week whatever you're doing if you're consistently doing it and then you know, if you're consistently doing the efforts week in, week out, guaranteed all of these things will arise. It's just part of being a human being. And in the training, they're the, they're the most important moments. 
Literally, they're the most important moments. And it's like, oh, fuck, I've arrived. You know, it might take, and kind of the more trained you become, it's almost like it takes longer, you know what I mean? Because you get more skilled. So little bits come in, but you're able to overcome them. But for me, for example, like on this one, it might have taken me six or seven weeks, eight weeks to get to a point where I was like, I'm really overwhelmed right now. I'm really tired. I'm really not wanting to be on the bike, you know? Uh, and sometimes it doesn't show up physically. Like you might produce good power, have a good heart rate, whatever, feel physically like you can do it. But mentally, you're just like, I don't want to be here anymore. This is annoying. And I guess you get sensitive to that. And then it's like, oh, yes, I've made it. Now I can really, in this exact moment, because it's like a supercharged moment, you know what I mean? It's almost like your mind is in this super hyper malleable state because the pressure is so high. It's like, it would be like gold being refined. So it's it's like your mind has just become heated up from the pressure to like a thousand degrees Celsius. And now it's in this super malleable state. And it's like, oh, sweet. Now I get to remold this in a way that is stronger, you know? So then it's you're pulling out all these little impurities from the gold, recasting it into something more pure. And then it's like, okay, now I've got this new, aka my mind, this new brick of more pure gold. And then you might go through another eight weeks of this refinement process where it's just slowly getting hotter, getting more pressure, getting hot. And then eventually you have the same opportunity again to go, okay, how do I want to think? Who do I want to become in this situation? And it's not like fake it till you make it. But in that situation, you go, okay, I want to be more strong. I want to be more resilient. I want to look at difficult situations and think of them as opportunities. Sounds real cliche, but then you go, okay, this is my opportunity to do that right now and then carry that forward. Absolutely. Lean into those experiences because uh, that's the only way you're going to get better at them is, is anything in life. You have to experience it and learn how you are as a human being in those moments. And you can't shy away from it if you want to if you want to do hard things, you know, it's going to be hard. No, you have to have just the courage to face off with it. I mean, it's really, I mean, that's what I love about this so, so much is just having those moments, facing off with them. And uh, you really just, it's not even about the bike at those points. Those moments really redefine your whole daily experience. They really re re redefine everything about your life. And that to me, that's what is the best part of ultra endurance. I don't think you need to do ultra endurance to, get those benefits there's other ways but that's what i've found to be the best part of it i might i might argue with you a little bit i don't I, endure like life is a marathon right it's not a sprint and it's there's going to be hills there's going to be flat tires there's going to be mechanicals like big time you know symbolically through life and and it is through endurance sports and endurance efforts that you can truly start to work through and apply those principles to to life in general, man. Like they are, they're, they're opportunities for you to uh, learn about yourself, to grow inside yourself, to face your fears, to if you fail, then that's fine, but don't let that failure define you. Let it educate you, let it strengthen you, come back stronger and keep fucking going, man. Like just keep going. And I think, I think that is one of the key ingredients that makes endurance efforts just so 
meaningful. And I think that's why we keep seeking them is not just what we can accomplish in those moments, but how they define our lives and how it is a tool in our lives to realize I'm a fucking badass. I can do hard things. I can overcome. I can deal with the highs and the lows, you know? Totally. Totally. I agree with you. I think you're hundred percent spot on with that. I think what I was, what I was leaning towards there in by saying it's not the only way is, you know, I can be involved in that process right now, but I'm not writing 30 hours a week. You know what I mean? But I'm still challenging myself. I'm still having things, doing things sometimes that I, I'm personally like, I can't be fucked doing that. I'm still doing it. So I agree with you hundred percent, but I think, I think, I think you're huge, man. The tool, the tools are invaluable. You know, the tools are invaluable. Yeah. Did you, uh, we got to talk about Ben, uh, Benki. Benki, yeah, yeah, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Did you know Benki before the race? No, I didn't. My mate told me about him when I was there. He said, oh, yeah, Benki's probably a dark horse. You know, he's he's from South Africa. He knows the course. He's ridden a lot of it. Uh, he's strong. So I was like, I was aware that he was there. He's just, when I was there and he's a strong rider. But, but prior to that, no. Yeah, so you and, you and Benki really are, I mean, as far as the race is concerned, it, um, I don't want to, in y'all's perspective of the race, it was mostly just you and him. Obviously, there was 32 other people there having their own, you know, efforts and and they all matter greatly. But you guys established a, a pretty significant lead very early on in the race. And then it, it really just became you and you and him it, is I mean, I'm I'm a dot watcher, so maybe you can fill in the blanks. Was it that easy? Uh, what was no. it like? <laughs> for me, it was agonizing, man. I don't know about Benke. Maybe he can talk to that. But for me, it was agonizing because from the moment, you know, it was ready to go, I was on. Like, I was like, all right, cool. I'm racing. I'm just riding hard. So it's kind of, that's a daunting prospect. You know what I mean? You're five kilometers into a race and you're kind of like a 90% effort. Like, you're kind of riding these climbs and ride initially as if you're going to literally only ride for like two hours, you know? So that's the kind of effort. And then you're kind of looking and there's someone with you and you're like, oh shit, he's with me. And then we're going and back and forth and back and forth. And you're just, you're kind of just waiting for someone to kind of just chill out a little bit, but no one's chilling out. And you're like, this guy's not chilling out. I'm not chilling out. Uh, And then every day it was just me and him, me and him. I was really, I can't speak to his experience, but for just me to stay in the game with him was the hardest thing I'd ever done because I don't know what it was, man. Every single day, something would just go wrong. You know, like uh, there was all these other like challenges that would come up, but I wouldn't call them things. They didn't feel at the time like things going wrong. Like being in the shop that you, you know, in a different country, in a different shop, you don't even know what to buy. You're like frozen. You know what I mean? Like how do I navigate that? That's kind of just a challenge that comes with the race. But things were very specifically going wrong. And I think the major, you know, I had an issue the first night, but with descending this steep climb or whatever and hit my wheel and freaking out about it and trying to work that out. But where things really started to take a turn for the worst for me was I went to go try and sleep after about 30 hours. About 30 hours into the race, I tried to sleep. I checked into a hotel. And so I checked into the hotel, had a shower, yada, yada, got into bed, and I couldn't sleep, um, which I'd never experienced before. I literally couldn't sleep one second. 
like wide awake, not one second of sleep. And I thought, fuck, I've been writing for 30 hours, probably been awake for like almost almost 36 hours, almost probably 36, 35 hours or whatever. And I can't sleep. This is so I was kind of freaking out, tearing up on the phone to my partner. Just she was on the phone, just literally breathing with me, just trying to calm down. And I couldn't. I was just it's like mentally like I was having an anxiety attack. So I was like, all right, someone's about to go down. And I was like, just get up and go. So I got let's up. Let's pause. Let's pause there real quick. What I I, I want to know if you have any idea what what was preventing you from falling asleep. Do you have any idea? I think I was stressed, man. I think I was stressed that he was next to me, but I didn't know at the time, you know, because I'd never experienced that before, but I think it was so stressful for me, such a new thing. And I was, I was struggling so much with the gravel that it's like my nervous system was so activated that even after 35 hours, I couldn't sleep one second, not even one second. I literally felt like I had five shots of coffee. Um, so I literally do you think just, that was your body. Do you think that was your body telling you, Hey man, you're not done. You got more left on the tank or hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't know what it was or whether it was God or my body, but it was, it worked out for the best. So I'm like, all right, fuck it. Deal with it. Just, I put my clothes back on, <laughs> you know, at this point I had already wasted like two and a half hours worth of time just trying to get to bed. So I was really upset about that. I was like, fuck, I just wasted two and a half hours. I didn't even get to sleep. So it just felt like wasted time. You know, at least when you stop for three hours, you sleep. So I was like, all right, put it behind you. Got up, got the food. And then, so that was going into night two. So this is going into the second night. And luckily for me, as the sun was going down that night, I climbed this really steep climb that was absolutely brutal, man. Steep, rocky. And then I descended it just as the sun was going down and the descent was off its head, like, super dangerous and i had just got onto the tarmac section as soon as i lost light so i was like well this is a good thing because at least i got to do that during the day you know because if i did that when it's not when it was nighttime i don't know what would have happened but i don't think it would have ended well so then i'm going through that second night um and he stops at this town called stellenbosch after 700 k's to sleep but i was like i can't sleep so i'm just going to keep going i tried having a nap didn't really work out Kept going, kept going, and then um, I was going up this. So now we're on day three, and um, I'm going up this climb, and then I look, and then he overtakes me. He overtakes me. So, and he was strong. When he was overtaking me, bro, there was he was strong. Like I was just looking at him. I'm like, he looks like he's in good shape, and I knew he had been sleeping. So I was like, fuck this guy. Yeah, he's you know. <laughs> I'm like there, like, oh my God, I can't even keep going. Eh? And he's just like, he's like dawdling off just like a joke. And then we entered into this uh, really kind of hot place. I forgot the name of it, Cedarburg. I forgot what it was, but it was hot, bro. And it started becoming like real desert status. And I had my phone in my food pouch charging. So I had the battery pack in my top tube bag, little cable going into my food bag. And I was going down this descent, huge descent, man. And then after this descent, it's this massive climb and then another descent and then this really steep climb. Like it was, I don't even know how I got out of it, got up with my gearing, but it was like a full body workout. Like I was using every single fiber of my body just to stay on the bike like this. And when I got to the top, I just thought to myself, check the time. And I went to get my phone and it wasn't there. And I was like, fuck. And I had this full freak out. I started ripping everything out. 
and my phone was gone, man. And I just knew in my head that it was like it had gone a very long time ago. So I was like, a part of me was like, it's gone. I just kept hearing this in my head. It's gone. Don't even, don't even worry about it anymore. You can't do anything about it. It's done. It's like, you're not finding that phone, man. And I was like, fuck. So at this point I was like tearing up. I don't know because the phone for me, like I was, I was calling my partner with it. I was calling my mom and I was listening to music on it because I love listening to music. So now I don't have any access to any of those things. Can't call my mom, can't call my girlfriend, have no music. And I've been awake now for three days. So luckily I had booked a hotel at the next town. Rolling into that town, I get there, all the phone shops are shut, so I can't buy a phone. I get into the hotel and I say to the chick, I was freaking out. I was like, look, I've lost my phone. Can you wake me up in three hours? Because if I go to bed with no alarm, I'm not waking up unless someone wakes me up. I was really freaking out about that. So I get into the room. I'm pretty emotional, man, just because everything's just gone to shit. I'm like, at that point, I really believed almost that I wasn't meant to be there and I was going to fail. But I was like, let's see how long this lasts. You know? Yeah, this was almost the uh, your premonition of potential failure that you had before yeah, the race yeah. coming true. It's almost before, like yeah, yeah, because before the race, I genuinely believed that I was destined to fail, like really genuinely. Like I had, I had seen it, and I thought, well, I have to just keep going. I was like, oh, I have to see if this is true. But it really felt real in my heart that I was destined to fail, and I was, I came all this way just for it to go wrong. So I was like, fuck, this is, you know, everything's going wrong. The premonition's real. You know, there's no way that I'm going to be able to finish this race because this is just, it's destined that I'm not meant to finish it, but I'm going to go until I can't. There was always seemed to be a way out. So I had the shower, put my phone on charge. I know my, my phone, my electronics on charge because I didn't have a dynamo. And in South Africa, they have load shedding. So the demand for power is higher than the supply. So a few times a day, they cut the power off to certain towns. And I got into bed. And I couldn't sleep again. Within two seconds, I realized I couldn't sleep. So now this is my third day going into my third night, no sleep. And I'm not able to sleep. Same anxiety started coming up like I'm having an anxiety attack. Just heart rate going through the roof. And I'm just like, fuck, I can't sleep anymore. Something's wrong. I really, at that point, I was worried because I'm like, something's wrong with my body, man. And I'm scared I'm going to have some sort of medical episode. So within a couple minutes of going through that, the power went off to the hotel. So then I was like, a part of me was like, okay, whatever. I can't sleep, but at least my 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 electronics are charging because they're almost out of battery. But then the power cut off, and I was like, they're not charging. Same thing happening again. Wasted all that time. Put my clothes back on. Left the town. Went and got some food. And then I'm like leaving this town, man, and um, going up this tarmac climb. And I just remember so le- leaving it- before you got a phone. Yeah, leaving. No phone now. No phone now. Yeah, so, just, yeah, just my just course knowledge in my mind. And it's different when you're on gravel, man, because, and you're in South Africa, like you want to be able to check if things are open. You, like you really, there's a certain safety net when you have your phone. And with no phone, I was just like, whoa, man. Luckily for me, I had the course memorized in my head. So I kind of knew, like I had that kind of safety net in my mind that I was like, I know what's coming up. But I remember leaving that town, running into this like black spitting cobra on the side of the road, just standing there. And I was, I don't know, I was, this cobra was there and it was going like this and I was yelling at it. And then I rode off and I just remember looking at this town and leaving and just getting further and further. The town was getting smaller and smaller. And like every fiber of my body was just like, turn the bike around. 
And it's like every ounce of focus I was using just to overcome this sensation to turn my bike around and go back. And for like two hours, man, I could see this tip. Like I was just like, just don't do anything. Just keep riding one pedal a stroke at a time because everything inside of me was like, go back to that town. You haven't slept in three days. And this is you're going to your third night now. No sleep. This is about to get fucking crazy. And I was scared shitless. And all I wanted no to do No phone to call anybody. Like, no phone to call anyone. And I was like, this could get really messed up. But luckily, I was able to keep going. And um, oh, this, I don't know if I'm talking too much, but. No, please. This is I wonderful. Get, suddenly, dude, I'm coming down this descent and there's all these lights on the road. And I'm like, okay, fuck, here I am. Eventually, when you're on your third night, going into your third night, no sleep. I don't even look at the trees anymore because I start to notice they're changing shape. You know, they start doing the hallucinating thing and that would freak me out. So I wouldn't even look at the trees. I'd be like, don't look at them because they're just going to be funny shapes and shit. So I was like, block that out. Just look straight. And I'm looking straight, doing all the tactics just to get through some tired patches. Then suddenly there's all these lights on the street and they're coming out to me looking like aliens. And I'm thinking, fuck, here we go. I'm seeing aliens and that. And they're going, oh, I'm all that crazy, like going off and that. And I, I thought I'm either about to get into a, a situation or – I didn't even know what was going on because I'm in the middle of nowhere. They were There was these dudes at a guest house. Some of them were drunk and they had just seen Benke come through and he told them about the race. So they were watching the dot and they were like, oh, yeah. So they brought me. They were like, come in, come in, come in. And I was like, whatever, man, I'm coming in. And I was like, to, I said to him, I'm like, look, I'm going to try and have a nap. I need you to wake me up in 20 minutes. So this girl led me into the back of this place and I tried having a nap. Didn't work. But I, I stayed there for 20 minutes. And then when I got up, bro, I started going delirious. So I couldn't find my way out the back of this house to the front where they all were. And at this point in my mind, I'm, I'm starting to have like psychotic episodes. So you can imagine me, man, I can't make my way out of this house. All the doors are shut. And I started feeling like I was on fucking Saw. You know the movie Saw? Do you remember that horror movie where they like trap dudes? Yeah. It's like these dudes get trapped and they have to find their way out. And one guy's like cutting his leg off. And it's all this like serious horror movie. And my mind literally started feeling like I had been, it was, I was in a trap. So I started freaking out, like ripping doors and like getting really angry and, and kind of scared at the same time. And then I, I remember I ripped this door open. They're all just sitting there like, oh, you still have like a couple minutes for your nap. And I was like, oh. I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm going psycho. <laughs> so I was like, no, no, it didn't work. And then I went on the bike again. I had a ruthless night of just trying to stay awake, climbing through some river at like 2 a.m. And then I was fortunate enough that that next morning at like 9 a.m., I found a shop that um, sold phones. So I had spent a bit of time there getting a new SIM card and getting back and forth, wasting more time. But then I had a phone again, but no service. When did you, I got to hear when you slept. Uh, yeah. Oh, when did you so finally now I'm on the, sleep? I'm on the fourth day. I'm on the fourth day now. Yeah. I just got the phone, but there's no service. So I, well, in the town there was service. So I WhatsApped my partner, did this whole WhatsApp operation just to get her knowing this is my Namibian number. Duh, 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 duh. I got a phone again. No service. I'm about to lose service now, but I'm all good. And she was freaking out, man, because the night before at the hotel, I had found a South African dude. I said, I need to make an international phone call. He's like, cool, do it. He just said, he just, he said to me, well, as long as you admit that the Springboks are better than the Wallabies, like the rugby team. And I was like, yeah, man. And he was like, he gave me the phone. I, I was telling my partner I lost my phone, but I was choked up. I couldn't speak. 
Because anytime I mentioned the word phone, I was like, I was having a mental breakdown. So I was like, I lost my phone and I was just about to start crying. Um, so she was in a state, man. I couldn't control myself. So when I got the new phone, she was cool. She was like, okay, thank God. He's got a phone again now. And um, I was coming up to a town called, it was called Laurie Osfontein. And I had it in my mind because Laurie Osfontein was in the middle of God knows where. They had a shop. And when I left this shop, it was 200 and I think and 70 odd Ks to a town called Springbok. And, but there was a town in between called Cliprand. But by the time I'd get there, it'd be shut. So I'm having one of those moments where I'm just really overwhelmed because I'm like, fuck, man, 275Ks on gravel in the heat until my next shot. So i got to carry all this shit. So I went in there and bought everything I could. Liters of water, soft drink, Coke, lollies, chips, bread, nuts, everything. And I'm literally just on my bike filling everything up, trying to stuff food in any place I could, down my jersey, in my pants, inside of the, everything, loading up. And I left there and I was feeling good, you know, because once you're on your fourth day really and you haven't slept, it's like you don't even feel tired anymore. You just feel kind of like um, you're in a dream. It feels like you're dreaming uh, in this really weird way, like almost like the colors, it's like you're on mushrooms or something, you know, like everything starts to distort. And then I remember I was getting tired, but at this point, the sun was going down and I was excited to get tired. I actually was like, wow, this is great. I'm getting tired. That means I'm going to sleep. For the first time, I was like, great, man. I can't wait till I'm so tired. I'm going to fall asleep. This is amazing. And uh, I got to a town called Cliprand. And when I was going into Cliprand, I remember I started feeling funny and I, I, was, t- uh, I was fully having a conversation with someone who wasn't there. Um, and I was getting angry at them because I couldn't find the town. I kept making these turns. I was like, the town's not there. The town's not there. And I was yelling at this fake person like, it's not there. It's not there. And when I got there, I thought, okay, cool. I'm going to drink a bottle of Coke and I'm going to ride until I'm absolutely cooked and then I'm going to have a nap. And I pretty much blacked out when I left that town. I don't remember anything. And because uh, this is my fourth night now with no proper sleep and uh, almost 100 hours or something, I'm not sure. And I was pushing my bike. I was, I was off my bike and I was pushing my bike down the road and I had completely forgotten who I was and what I was doing. And I was, I was just, I was very, I was so confused then. I was like, what am I doing? Where am I? Who am I? What's going on? Uh, like, like this. And I would turn around, walk back a little bit and then turn the other way and walk back a bit. And I was fully convinced that someone was coming to pick me up. And I was like, where are they? Like, what's going on? And then I was really lucky that for one second, the thought of doing a bike race came into my mind. And I was like, fuck, I'm doing the right. This is the Rhino run race. And I, so luckily I quickly ripped out my bivy and set my alarm on my phone for 20 minutes. Um, oh no, for an hour. And then literally like within one second, the alarm went off and I was up and I was like, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing. And then I rode down the road a little bit and then I was like, I'm too tired. I need to have another nap. Had the one hour sleep and then uh, I was able to continue. <laughs> you probably needed more than two hours. <laughs> Oh, two hours at that point felt like a lot, man, compared to what yeah. was going on. I regained all my sanity, so I knew what was happening. That is crazy, man. That is a crazy fucking story. I don't know, man. Your story plays out like a a, 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 a drama, a bikepacking endurance race drama. It's fascinating. And it's it's very telling of, of what 
humans people have to go through if they want to if they want want to win one of these races or compete let's talk about i mean the other dude there is an iconic image uh of you just you and your bike in the middle of fucking nowhere and the story is you looking for a tiny ass screw in desert and sand but that imagery is just so iconic of just you alone searching for a tiny ass fucking screw in you know thousands and thousands of grains of sand and you can just feel how like desperate and how alone you must have felt in that moment what happened and yeah what happened man well what happened was i got to the namibian border and had a great sleep you know and i was staying at the same place banky was staying at and we were were next to each other that night going into the border and we were you know it's kind of like we neutralized the race for 10 hours when we were near each other it's kind of like we had a little bit of a a bonding session being near each other and it was nice man we were kind of looking after each other and we realized that you know by the time the sun comes up, we're not going to see each other again. And we're kind of just back and forth, just enjoying, enjoying that. And I had a sleep, so I felt good. Um, and I was riding into Namibia. It's a long story, but key point, I got to a town and he was asleep, but I felt good. So at this point, you know, almost 24 hours worth of riding time. And, uh, had signal, so I called my partner. She's like, yeah, I didn't check the dots. She would just fill me in when I could speak to her. She was like, he's asleep. So I was like, okay, cool. I feel great. I'm going to keep going, you know, because I had enough food to keep going. I had 24 hours worth of supply. I don't know how, but I did. I had it in backpacks and taped my bike zip-tied. And I said, okay, cool. I'm just going to keep going. I know what it's like to keep doing these 24-hour rides because I've experienced that before, you know, multiple times on the Trans Am, going over 24 hours and then backing it up, backing it up. So I, I kind of, I wasn't scared about that. And I had overcome so much at that point that I kind of had the fear that wall we were talking about kind of had gone away now because I was like, well, it always just works out. Just keep finding a way to keep going. Literally, I put my phone away because I lost signal and then I hit this patch of sand and flipped over the bars. So I pick up my bike. I'm fine, a bit beat up, sand everywhere. And my derailleur hanger was bent. So I was locked into the two toughest gears, which was okay though because it was kind of getting flat and sandy at this point. And, this, and, it, and I was probably a couple of ways from, hours away from the sun coming up. And I thought, okay, don't change. My hands were all like this from the corrugations and that, so they weren't really working. And I was like, look, there's no way you're changing this derailleur hanger at night. You won't be able to do it. Wait till the sun comes up. So I waited till the sun came up, and then I kind of just was like, all right, now, now or never. So I flipped my bike over, changed the derailleur hanger. It works out. I get the derailleur onto the derailleur hanger. But I noticed that once, you, once, once the quick release goes through the frame, once it screws onto the other side, once it screws in, you know, it's locking, it's got this locking mechanism that there's this little screw, right? And it, it sits like there and kind of screws in, allowing this to actually catch and, and lock in place. Without it, it will just keep turning. So I was like, oh, I need that screw. It's on my old hanger. So I go to my old hanger and I pull it off. And then as I pull it off, it falls into the sand. And then suddenly I can't see it. And then, then I, you know, I start freaking out and I uh, have uh, two hours worth of, you know, operation of having it happen, searching for the sand. And eventually I was lucky enough after all of that. I essentially at that point I had given up. I thought, you know what, I'm not meant to be here. But I was super content because I was like, shit, that's the hardest I've ever gone to stay in the game. But I'm, I was just like, I'm not meant to be here. 
And uh, I was lucky that I had a K-Edge Garmin mount that uses the tiniest screw on my TT bars. And I got that and it locked into place and then I was able to keep going. <laughs> so it took you two hours to have that idea? Yeah, pretty much, man. Like it was like, it was literally, I'm just moving my phone just in case I have to put it on charge. But it was literally like, uh, yeah, a light bulb went off in my head and I was able to, I was like, able hey, to I got do some it. Other bolts. Yeah. Yeah. So it might have been, cool. it's one of those things where if like you weren't so sleep deprived and in the middle of an event, you might have like thought of it quicker, but. Uh, oh, definitely, man. The sleep deprivation was. From a dot watcher perspective, man, that was like just so, uh, it, it was epic. I don't know. It wasn't epic for you, but y'all are having this, this back and forth. I mean, it's, it's such a close race and then you get a lead and then you're fucking just stuck looking for a tiny ass screw for, for two hours in the middle yeah, of the man. desert. Can you hear I mean, me? Cause I've just put my phone on charge. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So it was, um, I don't know, feeling of leaving that after, you know, being awake and, I had like 60 or 70K, I forgot how much, how long, on the worst stretch of road after that in 40, like 42, 43, 44 degree heat, man, just to get to the next place, um, which was the hardest riding I've ever done. Sand, corrugation, a lot of time getting off the bike, walking. And within like 20 minutes after I got the screw on, Benke just rolled past me and overtook me. Yeah, and he's rested. He's feeling strong. Rested, fresh, bro. We started, we had a drag race. We were having a drag race, dude. Suddenly he goes past me. We're chilling for a bit. And then I, he starts looking back at me. This is like a criterion race. He starts looking back at me. And I'm like, is he playing around? He keeps looking back at me. So then the pace started to lift. And before you know it, me and him are literally racing each other after this whole incident. And uh, I couldn't keep up with him. So he dropped me. And then I hit all this sand. Uh, and then it was just, I was praying to God, holding on for dear life just to make it to the next place. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's skip ahead to, to the finish, man. I mean, you can start the story anywhere you want to, but, uh, I mean, you, it's a well-told story in the film, uh, but yeah, you have to, we have to hear it because maybe people haven't seen the film yet. Well, what happened was I made it to that this place called Better Camp. So after the screw and then having to continue riding in that horrendous oven, I made it there and they were all still there. Like when I rocked up, Benke was out the front. So I was kind of like, oh. And I knew that the shops after were going to be shut. So I kind of thought, well, everyone's kind of trapped here, which is kind of good. But I still was, I was so grateful just to make it there because I was struggling so hard. Like I felt like I was on the verge of just something bad happening. And uh, I was kind of like, you know what, I don't even care about this race anymore. I'm just so happy that I'm still here. So I was like, got into my room and I was like, you know what, don't make any decisions. Just set your alarm for four hours. Don't don't go, oh, I need six hours of sleep or eight hours or whatever. Just You don't know how you're going to feel after four. You might feel great. So I set it for four. Woke up and I was like, wow, I actually feel okay considering what happened yesterday. And uh, I started writing and I was really focused on that day. I was like, you know what, man, I've been stressed this whole race. Everything's gone wrong. And I was like, I don't care that it's the last day. I'm just relaxing. I was like, I'm literally, if I'm going to win this thing, I'm not forcing it anymore. I'm just going to let it come to me. Just relax, enjoy, look around, 
which was kind of hard because they were super corrugated roads. So it was like brutalizing the whole way. But I thought, just relax. So that was kind of my mood the whole day. You know, I mean, I'd be like pulling up to shops, taking my time, making sandwiches, you know, going to the toilet on the side of the road, really just just, just trying to enjoy my last moments of this race. And it was only at the end when I pulled into this place, maybe 130 kilometers from the finish, he was about 40, about 50 minutes, maybe an hour, I'm not sure, maybe 50 minutes ahead of me. And I uh, left that place and I thought, okay, I had two 250-mil bottles of Coke, two litres of water, and I was pretty dehydrated, but I thought it's now or never. I spoke to my, my partner on the phone and she was like, I said to her, have I messed it up? Like, have I fucked it? And she was like, nah, he's only an hour ahead of you. And I was like, well, an hour is a lot in 130Ks to be ahead of someone uh, at the end of this bike race. Like, you know, I, and I was doing the math. I was like, I'm going to have to ride like three or four kilometers per hour quicker for like a few hours just to catch it. And it was like this synchronicity. Everything just came together for me, man. I had lollies. I had some water and I just drank that. I got signal on my phone, downloaded Spotify. So this is probably the first time I had music, you know what I mean, for the whole event after losing my phone. So you don't listen to music for a few days, three or four days, suddenly you put music on, it's like smoking meth. Like it's yeah. like, <laughs> I was like, I just, I got this surge of like endorphins and I was just like, whoa. And I was so happy that I was still in the event that it all just started clicking for me. And I just was just riding, riding. I couldn't feel anything anymore, riding, riding, riding. And this confidence was just over – I was getting overcome with this confidence and almost guidance on what to do, like literally like as if someone was saying more power, less power, relax, go left, go right, go over these rocks. And I was just in this place, man. Like It was like I had a literal memory. It was some trippy like – past, present, future was all happening at the same time and I had this memory of this last bit of the race and I knew exactly what to do and this confidence was coming over me and I had the music, I had the lollies, I had the water and then I started to get tired. But same voice inside me was like, just a bit more, just a bit more. My partner called me and she was like, you're two Ks. Well, she actually was like to me, I'm not going to call you unless I need to. So when I heard my phone vibrating, I was like, I must be close. And she was like, you're two Ks next to this guy, two Ks. So I pushed and eventually I saw his front line and then spent about half an hour on uh, actually getting near him because we are going up and down these climbs. And then when I pulled up next to him, I was like, I didn't really want that to happen because I didn't want to have some like, you know, I knew he was a good rider, um, but I didn't, and I didn't want to have some kind of like one-on-one drag race with him at the end you know what i mean because it's like would be the most intense experience but that's what happened so i was like when i see him i had this coke regime in my head like where i was like hit a coke and then when i see him i want to have another coke so that's what happened like i'm pulling up to him and i'm drinking this coke put the coke back in here eat a tiny bit more food now all my food's gone all my water's gone all the coke's done because it was like my last bit of energy and then i pull up right next to him and i say hello to him and then within like a second man, we were just side by side, literally elbow to elbow, like we were literally bumping each other. Like it was some Hollywood script, man. Like literally our elbows were locking like we were on the velodrome. And um, then we, t- we were just riding, I was just riding hard for a bit. And what ended up happening was it's like I had this guidance. 
with its foot on the throttle saying accelerate and then I'd accelerate and then he'd come with me and then I'd back it off and then I would accelerate again and then back it off and I was doing this accelerate, relax, accelerate, relax for like a few minutes of just like kind of 80% back it off, 80% back it off and then it was just a sequence of like two or three climbs where it was I was applying the power and then on the last one it was like it was like someone saying 10 hard pedal strokes now. So I did those and then I just noticed that it was different. Like I felt like he wasn't coming and then it's like someone said to me, another 10 hard as hard as possible, but this time don't look back. Once you've done this, just don't look back. High beam your light, get like aerodynamic. It was, I couldn't go on my TT bars because they were bent from a previous crash. So they were gone. They, they couldn't be used. <laughs> they were like this way. So I was just like hands on the drops, kind of like what you see in like the Tour de France with my head down. And I just remember this feeling coming over me like it's done, do not, and just going, I had this, I just wanted to look back and see. But luckily I didn't because it was dangerous, but I had this feeling inside of me saying, don't you dare look back anymore. It's over. It's, it's over. And then I just kept hammering it, hammering it, hammering it. And then I was getting overcome, bro. I was, I was screaming, man. I've never had shit like that. I was literally imagine a bear screaming. That's what I was like. Once I realized, who were you screaming that, at? What were you screaming just a for? Release, man. Just imagine someone having their throat on your neck for like six days, and then suddenly, you you know that happens, and it, it felt like like it just felt like this moment I had overcome every single thing. And I just, I couldn't help but scream, bro. I was screaming at the top of my lungs, just like, like a, like a wild bull, man. And uh, then I'm like going up this tarmac. In my head, I was like, just make it to the tarmac. I come up over this tarmac climb and then I see the city, all the lights of the city. And then I was just like, don't you dare stop. And I'm just riding into the city. But I was still being careful because I knew that like, with my luck at that point, I was like, watch me get caught by the cops or something would happen. <laughs> and even it still was sketchy coming into town because there was this bit with this like road that went underneath the bridge. And I was like, oh, it looks like on the map you go over the bridge. So I went over the bridge, man, and then realized I was meant to be under the bridge. So I climbed this fence and then there was to get down onto the road, but there was, it was like these rocks on the side of a highway. So I literally grabbed my bike and slid down on my ass down this steep wall. And there was glass everywhere and I was bleeding, but I was just like, ah. And I got back on my bike and kept riding. And then, yeah, man, I made it there. That's insane. 17 minutes before Ben King. That's insane. Yeah. So I think it maybe overtook him maybe 20 or 30 kilometers from the finish. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Man, that is crazy. What was that moment like between you and Ben Key when when you finished? Uh, yeah. What was that like? It was good, man. It was hard because I was exhausted. He was exhausted. And I just, I felt really bad. I felt guilty. You know, part of me felt guilty because I, I don't know. I just felt bad because it was, I just thought, fuck, that would be, I just thought that would be not be nice feeling, you know, to probably at that point, you probably think you're, I don't know. I was just thinking it from my perspective. I was like, what would it be like to think you're going to win? And then last second, it just gets snatched like that. And I thought, uh, that's got to be hard. So I, I just felt bad. I felt bad in a way. Happy, satisfied, but bad. 
Yeah, dude. I mean, it, you earned it. Uh, you the the cool thing about the finish is that you were going on less sleep than him. He was ahead of you. You pulled him in, and then you dropped him. I mean, you fucking won it. And but I, I can understand your being sympathetic to him, but. I mean, that's what you go to find out is who who is the strongest rider, who who can manage all of those things for eight days in a row and get to the last and 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 finish, you know. And I mean, y'all both had an amazing effort, so it's obviously not a knock to Benke, but no, no, you, know, no, it's amazing. you 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 both put it out there and and you were able to pull it out, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, I think so for me congr- at the time, man, I was really surprised that I was able to reel him. Like it was surprising to be able to reel him in at the end, you know, with the all the conditions and that. And it was kind of, but it makes sense to me. Like after it really made sense to me because I knew everything was going wrong when I was doing the race. That's what it felt like. So when I reflected on that, it wasn't really unbelievable that I was able to be fortunate enough to actually pull it back in the last few hours. What was more unbelievable to me was the fact that I even made it that far. You know what I mean? Like I had four hours that night when I pulled him back. Yeah, it was a 24-hour ride or whatever, but I had four hours sleep. You know, to be able to do that after I had trained for that and it was the first time it felt like nothing, I didn't have to overcome anything other than my fatigue. So later on I was like, wow, like that wasn't actually that miraculous. What was miraculous was even just getting there to that position, you know. That last bit was just a logical outcome in my mind. I was like, that was for me, I was like, well, that was going to happen, you know, but I was more kind of, well, like how did how did I even make it to that point, you know? So I'm just grateful, man, that it worked out that way and uh, and I'm just happy that I'm happy that everything went the way it went, all the mishaps, all the – because it just made it special for me. And then having him there in the shape he was in next to me made it even more worthwhile and more memorable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering. I mean, this was this was a big event. Period. It's also your first gravel uh, event of this nature off road. Um, you were you were against. I think Benke's an ex professional road cyclist. I mean, he's obviously in phenomenal shape as well. You were able to pull out the finish. What did this event? Um, unlock in your brain? Like, what did you learn about yourself? What did you take away from this event? It, it really just cemented probably things that I had been learning for years, man. It was really just like the application of the theory for me in terms of, you know, you know, you come across things, you know, reading and you come across, you know, you have all these ideas about yourself, about how you would overcome things, who you are as a person and, Sometimes it's kind of like they're they're still in this kind of level in your mind where they're not actually a reality yet. It's just a belief. It's just kind of like a thought you have about yourself. So it was was great for me to go out there and cement all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It was really just satisfying to go, okay, let's see how I perform in these circumstances and see if what I think about myself is actually real or not, you know, and – that was really satisfying, almost like running a science experiment and seeing the results. So uh, it's really, for me, sometimes I look back on it and I go, it's really not complicated. Like, it's just you just don't give up. I know it sounds like I've done 
I've done so many circles and you can read all the books, you can read all the philosophy, you can read all the quotes, you can do all of that and it still comes back to just simple principles at the end of it, you know, but I, you know, where it's just like, oh, be consistent, apply effort, don't give up, you know. Put in the training, put like, in the work. That's, it's literally like, I, I, and you can break that down. I, at times I've broken that down and try to make it look sexy and do this and do that and do this meditation and then read this book and that all helps and that's all a critical part of it. But after that, I was just like, wow, man, it's literally at times like that, it's like, it's so simple. It was literally that whole race was just like, have the courage to continue when you're scared. Don't give up. Believe in yourself. And yeah, I was just relying on my training too. All, and that was just the recipe. I just kept going. That's it. And don't look back, man. Always move and forward. Don't look back. There's no need. And for me, that was huge because it's like just trusting myself, just trusting the train. In that moment, don't look back was like, why would you need to look back? Like, don't you trust the training, trust your body, trust everything, every single thing. So, and just have trust in the process and have trust in yourself. And uh, that's a recipe for it to just go the way you want, I think, long term. Yeah, I love it, man. I could talk to you all day and all night. I think uh, I'm sorry Same. for taking up so much of your time, but no, I, I really I enjoy. It, man. Thank you. I uh, I think um, I think you're going to compete with Sofian not only on the ultra endurance stage but also on the entertain the entertainment factor. Uh, you guys are both great storytellers, and I I, I appreciate uh, appreciate it, man. You guys are great for the sport. You know, people who are pushing pushing their limits and 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 setting an example, man. Yeah, man, totally. I I appreciate it, and um, I love this. I love the. It's not even that I love. I don't even know what. I don't even say I love the sport. I just love human nature. I love. I love the fact that everyone has that ability to overcome and it's just a part of who we are and what we've been doing for millions of years. You know what I mean? That's we've been doing that ever since we've been here. And it's just our DNA. Our DNA is to endure. That's I mean, you know, everyone who's listening, maybe one person in their life might achieve a 150 kilo clean and jerk or something specific like that, where it's like you have to have a certain type of genetic disposition. You got to train really hard for it. You got to but still enduring is something that's common to the, that's just what we do as human beings our bodies are primed to adapt and overcome so I, a part of me as i go on i realize i'm not special and i think what's exciting about it is is coming to that realization that's an empowering realization on a personal level and then also going through the training and and and, and the system and kind of it's getting in touch with that and letting that come, letting that flourish, you know, within yourself, all your natural capabilities. Man, so well said. I think we're groomed as humans to be endurance athletes. I mean, to endure, to endure. Um, if we're talking about the human species as a whole, we have endured, you know, and, and, and what you're doing is you're giving yourself an opportunity to tap into the potential that is in every single person. And... Majorly, so man. So I think it'd be a shame to live your life and not experience that at least a few times at the, at, at the extreme. 
I'm going to leave it there, man. I, I can't think of a better way to, to end a podcast. And um, again, man, I appreciate your, your coming on, chatting with me and, and, and mostly congratulations, man. It's, uh, I'm, I'm really excited and happy for you. And it doesn't come easy, you know, well, those efforts and those, those results don't come easy. It's been something you've been working on for a long time. And I'm happy for you, man. I'm glad, it, I'm glad you were able to overcome your demons and overcome your fear of gravel and all the things that life throws at you and bike pack racing throws at you. And, and I'm happy for you. So easy, man. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me on. And we'll obviously we'll chat further in the future in that. And I hope so. Yeah. Good luck with everything. Good luck with that training. Good luck with it's an exciting journey to be on. And I hope everyone, definitely, man, <laughs> definitely. Hey. And, uh, I hope everyone, whoever's listening, enjoys it. And we'll talk soon, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. And a big thanks to Abdullah for coming on today's episode. I was thoroughly entertained and I can't wait to have him back on the episode. And of course, I'll be watching his dot. Uh, very closely in the future. All right, well, moving on. Uh, next week is going to be an off week for Bikes or Death. I'm actually headed down to Mexico on a little vacation. I'll probably do a little work while I'm there too, but uh, that's a secret. And what's not a secret is I'm going to go surfing for the first time. We talked about it at the beginning of this episode. Uh, so if I don't drown, then I'll be back in your podcasting feed the week after that. And that episode is going to be something a little bit different that we haven't done before. I'm going to do a year-end recap. And uh, in that vein, we're going to be sending out surveys to listeners, to patrons. We're going to put it on social media. We're going to put it on the website, yada, yada, yada. And that is your opportunity to tell us what your favorite episode was, your second favorite episode, uh, your third favorite episode. And more importantly, next year, I'm going to be tackling topics, uh, something a little bit different. In the past, we've always focused on the people and their stories, which is which is absolutely wonderful, and that's never going to go away. But it does occur to me that maybe we could start getting into the nitty-gritty a little bit. We could start talking about how to ride in cold weather or sports psychology or physical therapy for endurance athletes, like those type of topics. And so as we head into the new year, I would absolutely love to hear from you. I want to hear what topics you want to hear about. I want to hear which guest you want to hear from. Uh, I want to hear it all. I want to know what, you, what we're doing right. I want to know what we're doing wrong. And that lets us do better in the future. So just be on the lookout for that. We are working on finalizing that survey and making it available to you. Uh, so I just want to ask that when you see that go out, if you can, Take a few minutes, fill it out. It does help us a lot to make sure that what we're doing here is relevant to you. Otherwise, you'll stop listening, which would suck. So yeah, that last episode is going to be a year in review. The other thing that I would love is to answer any questions you have, either questions about the podcast or me or about anything going on. Uh, I love doing AMAs. It gives me some fodder to talk about instead of me just up here rambling aimlessly. So uh, that's going to be another question for the survey is an opportunity for you to share uh, some thoughts or pose some questions or whatever you want to do. But again, we'll be sending that survey out soon and your feedback is appreciated. All right. 
And in keeping with today's episode, here is a quote from Henry David Throw. Never look back unless you're planning on going that way. Short and sweet from Throw. Never look back unless you are planning to go that way. All right, everybody. Thanks again for being here and tuning into today's episode. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, Embark Maple and Kuat Racks. You can find out more in our show notes or at bikesordeath.com. And of course, if you'd like to support Bikes or Death, the best way to do that is through patreon.com forward slash bikes or death, or you can head over to bikesordeath.com, check out the new merch we have available in the web store, and put a couple things in your shopping cart for this holiday season. All right, well, I'm off next week for a little vacation, but I will be back in your podcasting feed the week after that, and I am looking forward to it. Until then, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Oh, death.